Bonzilla presents Star Trek. Each week we warp speed into the world of Star Trek. This week, the crew takes a silly time travel trip to save some whales. It's 1986's Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again, one more time, but not one more time, many more times, hopefully. But for this time, one more time to Bonzilla Presents. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm Nick. I'm Will. And, but uh, it, it, it is one more time. Right. Well, yeah. It, 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 yeah. It's just like for one more time. Like, well, I guess like, you know, in the songs when they say like, one more time, that's like, you know, as they are ending. Yeah. So we, we, we hopefully, I mean, you know. You know, like, you know the world. Man, we up. we we know how to introduce a podcast. We 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 really got it. I mean, like, you know, the the world can know. always end. You know, you're right. It's like that one. That's like every every day you can be like one more time. <laughs> it's, it's, welcome to life, one more time. <laughs> like that, the, the NFL draft was a couple weeks ago, and before uh-huh. the draft, the the Forty ers coach was asked, like, you know, because they had moved up the three pick, and everybody's like, oh, I think they're going to take a quarterback, and it's like. Are you is like and then like you know they're doing a press conference and some reporter asked the coach is like is is your current quarterback going to be on the roster at the end of this weekend and the coach was like I don't know who's going to be alive tomorrow <laughs> and it was just like good on you for like answering that's the question awesome. like that yeah that, so that, that, that like, that's pretty excellent so uh, yeah so uh, I hope that we continue to be alive because there's a lot of really fun movies to to get to. Um, in the future of this podcast, not just in these franchises, but possibly other franchises that we might there, want to look at. There's a there's a really that that joke makes me think of a really funny bit because I've been watching uh, rewatching The Flash recently, and Danny Trejo's in it for an episode, and he plays like a like a bounty hunter type character who's after this one this one guy. And I'm gonna botch the joke, but he he says something like the guy thinks he's going to kill him, and then he and then he says something where he's like, oh, I guess this guy isn't gonna kill me. And then he's like, he says something like, it's like Danny Trejo's like, I'm gonna take care. It's like it's like don't worry, I'll take care of you. And then he's like, oh, and he's like, well, like how? And he's and he's like, well, is he gonna send me somewhere? He's like, he's like, oh, I don't know. And then he's like, oh, okay, that's good. And then Danny Trejo's like, I don't know where people go when they die. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just I always think about that when that's like a that's like a really good um this is a really good joke. Yeah. That is a good I joke. Watched. I mean you uh you know sometimes shows have good jokes. I love also like and I do this all the time, but I love like when you repeat a joke and you're like, Well I'm gonna botch the joke, but yet I still have the audacity to be like, so I'm gonna like I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you this watered down version of this of this bit to what end like if, if i'm botching the joke it's maybe not gonna make you laugh right 
And I'm only demonstrating the fact that I heard something at some point. <laughs> yes. That there, there was something that was like, you're giving me the general gist. Of right, what, right. What happened on the show? Like the other day I heard something and that's basically the information that I'm imparting on to you. I'm not relaying the, the proper information. Right. Uh, in the Especially way when, was... when you're trying to make a point too. Like, and it's just like, you know, I'm, I'm botching what he said, but this is the point that I'm trying to make. And this is why you should laugh at the yeah, jokes yeah believe in like, it long long story short or i mean the 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 infamous one is yada 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 and like, yeah <laughs> it's like yada yada over the best part so <laughs> um yeah that's that that's funny. uh one of the few great bits of seinfeld season eight so then and then so it's kind of like in in this case we'd be like so we started out watching you know star trek the motion picture and then yada 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 we got to save some whales <laughs> that's, that's basically yeah that's basically where we are but that uh, is what we're doing today we are going to be talking about star trek 4 the voyage home and yes it has been made clear this is the one with the whales that everybody knows about and uh it's a movie that i am extremely excited to to dig into um as kind of the kind of finale of this little trilogy as as a as a milestone in the star trek franchise this is definitely going to be an interesting episode. I think there's going to be a lot to kind of discuss with with this one. Yeah, I mean, and and this was um, this was nice for me because it was also one of the ones I was familiar with. Um, yeah, and it's also you're familiar with it, but now you also it's nice too to do it. And, See it in, in context, in, with, in the context, like, yeah. and 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 kind of having rewatched. You know, especially rewatching uh, Search for Spock so recently and then following this up and kind of getting the whole grasp of, of what this trilogy and this arc is. is it, it was really fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I, I, am, I am ready. All right. So, as usual, let's start with how we got to a Star Trek movie about saving the whales. We come back to right before Search for Spock is released all the way back in 1984. At this point, you know, uh, we, we've, we've talked about a little bit that, you know, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Kratzenberg have been kind of on the upper echelon of the Paramount executives in charge of the Star Trek franchise. It's important to note that um, right around sort of this release window of Search for Spock and kind of the, the, the making of it is when Michael Eisner does leave paramount to become the ceo of the walt disney company where he he has a huge impact and eventually while jeffrey kratzenberg would follow him he does still stick at paramount for a little bit uh to kind of keep charge of the star trek franchise so around the uh release of the search for spock uh nimoy is called into jeffrey kratzenberg's office and kratzenberg says basically says we want you to be involved with the next Star Trek movie. We have a really good feeling about this. And, you know, we have to kind of finish, you know, we have to keep going with the story. We can't end it there. And Nimoy said that he remembers the exact words that Kasselberg said to him. And he said, the training wheels are off. We want you to make your vision, whatever Star Trek movie you want to make. And for Nimoy, that was obviously a big deal. Cause one it said like, okay, that he succeeded as a director that Paramount enjoyed his work on search for Spock. Um, and it was kind of a director's dream to basically be told by a studio, go ahead and make whatever version of whatever movie you want. And for Nimoy, it was kind of a big task because with 
the search for Spock, yes, he had freedom and him and Har Bennett had freedom to kind of, well, how do we get Spock back? But, you know, everybody knew that the story had to be about Spock's return. Like that was the story and they hadn't had to work backwards from there. Whereas now Paramount and their executives are basically saying, you, Nimoy, you have a blank slate. Whatever is on your mind in Star Trek, we trust you. Go ahead and make it. So Nimoy and Bennett sit down, you know, and, and now, you know, Star Trek 3 has come out and is, you know, the big success, well-reviewed. And they're discussing where they want to go next. And Nimoy's big thing is that since Star Trek had come back with the motion picture, we've just had three really heavy drama-filled epics. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting like, you know, Khan and like, you know, there's death and we're resurrecting people or fighting this kind of weird, like, you know, crazy machine ship and all this sort of stuff. And, and Nimoy's thing was like, one of the things that has been really missing from all these Star Trek movies is the comedy and the seriousness and not the, the silliness, I should say, the silliness and the comedy. And not that those movies didn't have humor in them, but Nimoy has very fond memories of shooting those episodes, like those more comedic episodes, like the trouble with Tribbles and shore leave and, and, and even journey to Babel where there's, there's a little more kind of comedic meat on the bone to an extent. So Nimoy's big thing is that he wants to make kind of a, a comedy movie with the star Trek crew that kind of wraps this all up. And he wants to just have a fun time. Uh, he said that his vision for the movie was no dying, no fighting, no shooting, no Forton torpedoes, no phaser blasts, no stereotypical bad guy. I wanted people to have a really great time watching this film. And eventually somewhere in the mix, we got some big ideas at them, which we'll get to in a second. And Nimoy's other idea with this was a really easy way to make a comedic movie was to introduce the concept of time travel, which the Star Trek series was no stranger to. There were a couple episodes of the original series, of course, that dealt with, with time travel scenarios. And Nimoy thought, well, time travel is a really, it's, it's easy to write fish out of water. We have the strong characters. We'll put them in, con in a different context. And we can actually do some location shooting, which none of the Star Trek films have been able to do. We can figure it out. And Harv's like, well, the main thing is if we do a time travel movie, we have to set it in the modern day. And though Roddenberry was still kind of involved in this meetings and he still tried to get in his save, uh, you know, JFK or this JFK assassination story. Harv was like, no, because people know that JFK can't survive or he has to die. So people know what that's going to be. And that's too heavy. We want to do something crazy we want to do something silly and if we set in the modern day we can just go to san francisco we can go to wherever we want to go just shoot it there have a lot of fun and you know make it easy for us to shoot that we don't have to build more planet sets and everything like that we can all shoot on location so now that they have this idea they basically have we want to do a time travel movie it's going to be more light it's going to be more comedic what the deal what's what's the deal what are we doing why do we need the time travel the original idea was, okay, so time travel, they need the time travel for a reason. Why are they time traveling? They need to find something that's only in the past. And this is where Nimoy then did get his, like, we'll throw out some big ideas at them. We'll do something about environmentalism or something like that. So Nimoy's original idea was sort of, okay, rainforests, 
rainforests are being destroyed. We got to save the rainforest. So they got to find a plant in the rainforest because, you know, some disease is killing everybody in the future. And then he was like, well, no, that's a little too easy because like, why is it hard to pick a plant out and make a medicine out of it? And killing everybody in the future with a disease would be just too heavy. Again, we they want to avoid the heaviness. But the inspiration finally came to Nimoy when he was reading a book about extinct animals. And he thought, oh, okay, so if they try to find something that's extinct in the future, that would be fairly interesting. And in doing research, he saw a film about, you know, whale conservation and, and you know, the struggles with whaling, which is, a, you know, a very real struggle. And he thought that's the perfect creature because not only is, you know, something that could conceivably go extinct and not only is it something that can, we can throw that big environmental and, and, and conservation idea and really explore that and tell that story, but it adds another struggle. Like how do you get the whales, you know, in the future, they're huge animals. They're the biggest animals. He thought that the whale songs, which, you know, as seen in the movie and still to this day are a big mystery about what whale songs are added some intrigue and kind of everything kind of fell into place from there. So, and Harv was just kind of along for the ride at this point. He was just kind of like, yeah, let's make a movie about saving some whales. So, um, so they start trying to conceptualize exactly, again, the, the finer details of this story. When they get a call from Paramount. And Paramount tells Nimoy that we got a call from one of the biggest actors in Hollywood that he wants to be in your movie. So you need to write a part for Eddie Murphy. So apparently, allegedly, Eddie Murphy, who was just coming off of another big Paramount hit in Beverly Hills Cop, was a big Star Trek fan, uh, especially of the recent movies, and wanted to be involved and heard that there's going to be more comedic shops in the movie. So they start to formulate, okay, so I guess Eddie Murphy is going to be our main person, you know, our main kind of casting in this movie. Mm -hmm. So they hire these two writers, uh, Steve Mearson and Peter Crikes uh, were hired the script to, you know, tailor to being Murphy as a big star and to get this whale idea in there. And so basically they wrote a part for Murphy, who was kind of an eccentric college professor who was an alien conspiracy theorist and liked to play whale songs to calm himself down. They had the scene where Eddie Murphy would be at the Super Bowl and then see the bird of prey coming from the time travel. And then he would go on these adventures to save the whales. Essentially, and we'll get, I'll get into more of this a little bit with one of the specific character later. This version of the script was just not good. Not good at all. And everybody was already having this, have second thoughts about this Eddie Murphy casting um, because Nimoy felt that, you know, it, like, yes, that Murphy could bring in kind of a non-Trek audience because of how big of a star he was becoming, but also it just, if the part was bad, it would be very easy for the film to be really cool. Like, Oh, they're trying to cash in on the Eddie Murphy train, you know? And, and that was really dangerous. Paramount kind of was like, it would be nice to have Murphy in this film, but we also want to have him in more Beverly Hills cop movies for us. And we don't want to cannibalize his star. We don't want him to be in too many things. And then like, you know, by the time we do Beverly Hills cop two, it's going to be like a flop. 
And then Murphy got the script and it was like, okay, no, I, this is not, this is not what I want to do. Eventually uh, the decision was made later when Murphy um, decided to do the karate action comedy, the golden child uh, instead, which of, you know, you, of course, you know, was one of his biggest hits uh, of all time. It wasn't. Um, so then Nimoy and Harv Bennett are kind of in a place where it's like, okay, we, we like this idea with the whales. We like this idea of making a sillier movie, but the script as we, as we have it right now, it, it's just, it's not where we want it to be. And they also know that this is going to be sort of the finale of this arc that started in con. And again, Harv has been going into this movie of just like, we need to make this movie as if it's the Star Trek finale. Cause you know, I'm, I'm sure Paramount wants to make more movies, but in terms of this arc that we make, we have to make it sort of the finale and anything that happens after that, you know, we'll figure it out from there. So they're struggling with the script. And at this point, you know, again, Katzenberg has kind of, kind of moved on. And so their new head of production on this movie is Dawn Steele. And Dawn Steele has kind of like knows the history of these Star Trek movies. And her, her, her whole thing is, well, the last time you guys had a script that you guys weren't happy with, what did we do? We brought in Nicholas Meyer. So why don't we just do that again? Why don't we ask Nicholas Meyer to come back and help write this movie? And Harv and Nimoy were both very on board with that. Cause even though like Harv had had his disagreements with Meyer on sort of the changes that were made into wrath of Khan, Harv recognized that Meyer, you know, really jumpstarted this whole, you know, current star Trek boom and knew that, you know, Meyer had worked with time travel before in, you know, the time after time, the Jack the Ripper and HG Wells time travel movie I've talked about before. And Harv, you know, he said that Harv's healthy sort of disrespect for the Star Trek franchise, like just brought another voice to it. So they were both eager and Meyer was eager to come back because he, even again, with those disagreements, he liked the characters. He, he ended up liking the Star Trek world. And he wasn't directing that. He basically was like, okay, I can just write this movie and Nimoy can take care of all that stuff later and all the like little itty bits and changes. So with the last time Meyer, you know, if you remember, he took basically elements of all the different scripts that were for wrath of Khan and created kind of a, a mega script and, and, you know, put his touch on it. This time Meyer had no interest in reading that previous script because his whole thing was like, obviously Nimoy doesn't like it. Paramount doesn't like it. So why, why do I need to pay attention to it? So Bennett and Meyer get together and they basically make an agreement of how they're going to write the script. Bennett's going to write all the quote unquote space stuff, which is, you know, the beginning of the movie and the very end. And Meyer is going to uh, write all the time travel stuff. So basically everything that happens in the modern day is, is Meyer's work. Uh, and Meyer was very eager to take on that role. And he was very, uh, welcome to behind the scenes. He's very proud of some of the kind of jokes he was able to make about modern culture and everything like that. Uh, and he felt that it was a great fit for his sensibilities that he got to, you know, truly kind of untap his, the kind of comedic stuff that Meyer enjoys writing kind of, again, that sort of healthy kind of outsider look at Trek and kind of, you know, letting that kind of come in. Uh, Meyer had a lot of big contributions, obviously to the film. He basically shaped the entire story in that uh, middle portion 
most specifically, of course, he creates the character of uh, Jillian Taylor by combining elements of the Eddie Murphy character uh, into another female reporter character that was in that, you know, that was kind of as part of that original pitch and basing it uh, off of a, uh, a whale biologist that he had seen in a documentary that he watched to help us, you know, help get him in the mindset for, for the whale stuff. Everybody was on the same page for the script. Most another story that is, is very much in there is that uh, Nimoy told Meyer that he wanted to have a scene where Spock confronts like a punk rock kid because this is the little kind of like story that I do know about that because like because you know Spock or, or Nimoy had like encountered like a, a punk rocker on the streets of New York and like according to him he said if I were Spock I'd really Vulcan neck pinch this guy and Meyer was like this is great because the punk rock scene was something I didn't get to really do in time after time so I'd like to do that as well so everybody was just on the same page here and the script kind of comes together very quickly as is, is regular with kind of Meyer's work to the point where after that drip that that Meyer and Bennett script is completed a Paramount executive you know invites Nimoy to lunch and basically tells Nimoy this script is so good that even if this wasn't a Star Trek movie, we'd immediately greenlight this thing. And Nimoy was like, that's great. Like, I mean, I, that's a, I guess that's a good sign. I guess, you know, if they would make it without the Star Trek, you know, franchise tag on it, it must be something we can do. So basically the script comes together in that way. And, and Nimoy is very eager to, you know, come back and direct it. Though Nimoy would recount that this was, this directing effort was the most fun he had ever directing a movie but also the most challenging because with the search for Spock, obviously he wasn't in the movie until the very end. So he could just basically always be off camera and always be doing that stuff. Whereas this movie, obviously Spock's back and he has to get in that mindset of, you know, the, the, the very emotionless kind of the stoic Spock while also having the big energy to like get people in, in directions and everything like that. So with that, you know, basically they're very happy with the script. They find it funny. They find it exciting. They find it energetic. They find it a satisfying conclusion to the story. And they feel like audiences are going to have a good time with it. So with that, now they got to get everybody into the, uh, uh, back into the movie. And obviously, you know, the original cast is, is game though. Shatner did hold out for more money, which, you know, there was, it was kind of the thing where you read it, Back then, it was like, oh, like he wasn't sure if he wanted to come back. And it was very clearly him negotiating for a little bit more money. There was a concern at Paramount very early on that Shatner would want to direct this movie because of the whole favored nations clause that like, you know, whatever Nimoy gets a raise, Shatner gets a raise and vice versa. And they're like, well, we, we made the offer for Nimoy to direct the first one. Obviously, you know, there's nothing stopping Shatner from when I directed and not that they were opposed to the idea of Shatner directing a movie we'll definitely get to that in the future um but they were more like we just like Nimoy so much we want him to kind of finish this story but Shatner was still doing TJ Hooker and he just he had expressed interest to people about like maybe directing something in the future but he was just too busy with TJ Hooker to really focus in on doing the movie so but eventually he does sign on and, and you know he gets the raise. Nimoy gets the raise. It's all good. 
we do have our main uh, Dr. Jillian Taylor, our, our main uh, character within the modern day, our, our, is introduced to all the Star Trek true, uh, played by Catherine Hicks, of uh, our, our second Seventh Heaven cast member right. um, in the movie. I think that's it. I do think Jessica Biel was on an episode of The Next Generation, though. <laughs> so she might I'd have to double check on that. So anyway, Catherine Hicks basically treated this as an audition. Um, she had no connection to Star Trek at all, uh, but she remembered in college that like a lot of her really smart and really good friends were really into Star Trek, and she knew that it was a big deal. So she thought it would be a, a fun role to audition for, and eventually she said that her her outsiderness helped inform the character uh, because you know, she was like the character was an outsider to the Star Trek world. So basically she said a lot of the confusion of what was going on was basically kind of just real. Uh, Nimoy casted her. uh, He said in an interview that uh, it was down to two actresses and I couldn't find who the other actress was. I'm sure. I don't know if it was anybody like big or anything like that, but he both took them both individually to Shatner's ranch to see if they had chemistry uh, with Shatner, because obviously Shatner was going to be the character that this, uh, the actor that this character would be interacting with most. And Nimoy said that in an instant, he saw that like Catherine Hicks and, and, and William Shatner just had sort of a spark in terms of this, their conversational tone and everything. So he, he knew that Hit Hicks was um, the, the right person for the role. And uh, a fun story that uh, Catherine Hicks tells uh, about the movie is that there's a scene like late in the movie where she's going to get beamed into the the bird of prey. And obviously Nimoy's there as director and Shatner's there kind of, you know, doing other scenes on that day. And Hicks looks to both of them and she asks, so what is, what does it feel like to be beamed up? And Nimoy and Shatner just kind of looked at each other for a second, kind of like, that is actually an interesting question. And then Shatner looked right at her and said, it tingles a little bit. And so that's kind of how she kind of informed the, like how, how she actually acted the role. Uh, also funny note too, uh, is that uh, Catherine Hicks also legitimately became like a whale activist after this movie. Oh, that's cool. She, she learned a lot about the, you know, the, the stuff that was going on. So she actually dedicated, you know, money and time to actually help whale conservation after she did this movie. Um, another note uh, that I want to make is uh, Nimoy again felt it was uh, important to bring Mark Leonard back, but uh, as as Sarek, but also was very, very, very much wanted to also have Jane Wyatt return as Spock's mother, uh, Amanda Grayson. Uh, and just as Jane Wyatt was concerned, uh, you know, Jane Wyatt was actually really interesting because she was, you know, she had been in a lot of you know, major Hollywood productions. She was known also in the sixties on television for father knows best. Uh, and so she had like a lengthy career and she always said that nobody mentioned any other role to her more than her role as Spock's mother on that one episode of star Trek uh, on journey to Babel. So when Nimoy contacted her to come back for the movie, to have a scene with him, she was very eager because she was very thankful that, you know, these star Trek fans really, you know, kept her career you know, alive in that respect, even in her kind of older age. So she was very happy to return. And then I also do want to mention very briefly, Robin Curtis does return at the beginning of this movie to play Savik. Uh, the intention always was to 
leave her behind on Vulcan, mainly because Harv and Nimoy agreed that there would just be she would just be an extraneous character in the future that, you know, they're already having to deal with hiding Spock's ears and want to do with her. And there really wasn't much for her to do. Now, I do want to mention this fact, because this is always something that I've very much been like, I don't know, it's just always kind of makes me laugh is in that bad script, in that original script that nobody liked, the explanation for Savik staying on Vulcan is that she was pregnant with with Spock's child from no, their palm far. No. And immediately, like, that was legitimately one of the no. things that, that turned Nimoy and Harv off of that script. Because one, it was like, that's weird. And two, we can't, we could never do anything like that because that's something you would have to return to. And there's no way right. we would want to ever return to it. No, so eventually, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. So, so then when Meyer wrote the script, his suggestion was like, you don't really need to explain it. Like, it's just, you know, yeah, just kind of yeah. leave her behind. Um, and that was, that was perfectly fine with them. Um, also, uh, VJ Armitage, who we, we saw before in Octopussy, his acting career continued in this movie. He makes one brief appearance. Uh, as a Star Trek, uh, as a Starfleet uh, uh, person. Um, so filming uh, is mostly done in San Francisco. Um, the uh, the main sets that are, they do build the sort of the Federation sets that we see in the movie. And uh, the Bird of Prey set is re-tinkered to be a little bit different than it was in uh, Search for Spock. But basically most of the movie is shot on location in San Francisco, which uh, Nimoy was eventually essentially worried at first of like, okay, do we have to do a scene where they have to get modern clothes or something like that? Like, are they going to look too weird? And then when they were doing location scouting in San Francisco, he was like, oh no, everybody dresses here really weird. So we can just keep them on all their future clothes and nobody will bat an eye. So he's very happy that he could uh, do that. So uh, a couple of fun stories from, from this production couple of famous stories as well uh one that i always love is that there's the scene in the movie where uh Chekhov and uhura are on the street and they're asking people where the nuclear vessels are mm -hmm. yeah in uh -huh. alameda and one morning like they're shooting the scene in this morning uh when someone who was living in that area went down to to, to get their car but didn't re they, 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 they weren't there to see all the signs of like, hey, we're filming a movie, so you need to move your car temporarily. So her car had gotten towed because they needed to shoot the scene. And so she was like, oh, damn, like that's on me. I didn't, I didn't like, I wasn't paying attention. So she went up to the, you know, production people and was like, hey, like my car got towed. Like, can I just be an extra and make a little money in this? Is there anything I can do? And they're like, sure, go ahead. Like, and, and Nemo was like, you know, I kind of feel bad. So like, hey, come on in, be an extra. So basically they told all the extras to just kind of like ignore, like act natural, just be find these people really weird. And so, you know, she's walking by and they ask her like where the nuclear vessels are, like in Alameda. And she's the girl who responds, oh, I don't know that. I think they're across the bay in Alameda. And Nimoy immediately, you know, and you know, see like, you know, the checkoff and everybody, they like respond. And Nimoy immediately is like, cut, get that girl a contract where she's allowed to speak on camera because we're keeping that in the movie. So she got paid extra because like she just didn't realize that she wasn't actually supposed to speak that's for her awesome. contract. Um, so that's like one of the famous scenes um, of the movie. The other famous story that comes out of this production is I kind of briefly mentioned before the punk rock scene or the punk rocker on the bus. 
associate producer Kirk Thatcher, who would go on to be uh, a sizable contributor to the modern Muppet producing uh, later in his career, it told uh, like basically like when the scene kind of came up, told Nimoy like, hey, like you know, I don't mind like I can make my hair a mohawk, I can dress crazy, like I'll be the punk guy in this scene. And one of his reasonings was, well, originally in the scene, they were just going to use some, you know, some just kind of pop rock song or whatever. They were just going to like, you know, pay for singing. And Kurt Thatcher was like, you know what? And like, I could write just some, some dumb pop, uh, some, some dumb punk song in a weekend. And like, you could just use that. And so they're like, okay, like, go ahead and do it. So Thatcher kind of goes together with the sound designers and the sound team. And basically they go on for a weekend Thatcher writes a song and he's like, well, what is punk distilled to punk at its base is I hate you and I hate the world. So he just writes a song called I hate you. And just in the most banal, like he basically like, like, like the, so the lyrics are like, I, I hate you. And I berate you and everything like that is like, we recorded on the shittiest mics. We did it all in one take. And then I got to be in the movie. And, and Thatcher says that, because he was he doesn't get any residuals or any checks for you know the um the the role of the punk but he does get eight dollar eight cent checks every so often for the song itself uh that he wrote um so that was kind of a lot of fun uh they did get the you know shoot a lot in san francisco which had been very much trying to get back into sort of allowing people to shoot there obviously also, in a couple of years, we're going to get you know, around this time. We also get um, View to a Kill. So they're very open. Uh, they do actually get to shoot some driving on the Golden Gate Bridge, which was very fun. The one place they were not able to go was the actual Golden Gate Park, unfortunately. It was just not available at the time, uh, even though they had shot there for the end of Wrath of Khan. So Vent said Will Rogers Park in L.A. Uh, was um, the, the replacement for, for Golden Gate Park. The biggest challenge for this movie, 100%, was shooting the whales. Because they found Nimoy and his team, especially the the effects team at ILM, did a lot of discussions with actual marine biologists, with whale experts, with underwater photographers. And they all basically were like, it's really hard to shoot whales up close because they're naturally shy creatures and you can't really do it unless you kind of harass them and like kind of be in their face. And obviously the team was like, this is a movie about whale conservation and treating animals right. Like we don't want to like harass these whales. So it came down to like, they would be able to use like a few stock footage, but basically to get all the effects that they wanted, they would have to build some whales. So the team at ILM kind of came up with two solutions. The main whales, the main full body whales that you see for most of the movie are these kind of uh, four foot long miniature whales that they were able to build and test. And they brought in, again, like an, a, a whale expert to help design the skin to make sure that it looked good. And, and the way that it worked um, is that they... Uh, they hired robotics expert Walt Conti. And, and this was Walt Conti's first film. He would actually go on to be kind of a, a major robotics person in, and, and kind of a, a, with a focus on water effects for, for a couple of years in Hollywood. Eventually, would get nominated for Academy Award for The Perfect Storm. But his whole idea was when he studied whales, it was like, well, the, the movement's in the tail. So as long as we kind of get the tail movement to go, it doesn't matter what we do with the front half. So essentially, he built this robotics thing where all the mechanics within the tail, they used RC um, 
like controls like a, like you would like a car mm-hmm. and just basically uh they shot everything in a in a swimming pool uh, somewhere in California added some like salt and like some earth like to like make it like cloudy and all the uh all the full body stuff that you see in the movie or most of it is pretty much those four foot animatronics they did have to build kind of a more life-size one for when Nimoy uh, has to mind meld with the one whale. And then the other big thing is that, you know, for like the end of the movie or anything that was kind of a wide shot of the, of the bigger tail splashing uh, one of the ILM members was a former Disneyland employee. And he had seen how the animatronics work at Disneyland and how the ride vehicles work and everything. So what they did is they just built kind of the tail and put it on this kind of Disneyland ride style track, which allowed them to kind of actually like move the tail for like the end of the movie and everything like that. So um, in all, I think there's only two shots of real whales in this movie, two or three shots and everything else that you see in the movie is 100% visual effects. Another thing that they had to deal with was there's a scene where they needed to have the helicopter Sulu's driving you know, carry the big whale tank that they did. And they wanted initially to have like, okay, well, let's just ask San Francisco if we can do it and just drive like a, a real helicopter with a real rail tank underneath to get the shot. So obviously San Francisco said, no, that's just not feasible. So then Harv came up with the idea of, well, why don't we use like a remote control helicopter? And the only model that they have of like the specific helicopter in the movie, the Huey was only being sold in Japan at the time. So they, so luckily another producer was in Japan for another movie. They brought back the thing and they shot the miniature from Alcatraz Island. And because they're like, well, there's no trees or anything. You don't know how far away that helicopter is. It looked like a very natural helicopter shot. Uh, the one thing I do want to mention before we kind of move on into the actual movie itself, just if I double check everything. But the one thing I should mention is that what everybody says about this movie is this was the most fun that they had making a Star Trek movie. Nimoy says this. Harv says this. I, I, Uhura says this. Shatner kind of implies it again in his very Shatnery ways. It's hard getting actual thoughts from Shatner on like a lot of these movies because he's he's a very Shatner person, but he he seems to also say that he had like a, so much fun on this movie. Just like even Kirk Thatcher in his interview about the movie said, like even with all the Muppet productions that he's done now, this is just the most fun he's ever had, like making a movie that everybody was just really on board with it. And had a lot of fun. The the ILM guys had a lot of fun. Like the, the whale thing was a new thing for them. So they had to kind of figure that out. Uh, and they had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, it was just... They wanted to make a fun movie. And they had a really fun time making it. Uh, and um, they got to make you know, a movie that they were all very proud of at the end of the day. And that is... Isn't that the dream? That really is the dream, honestly. Like, if you can make a movie that you have fun on, you know, because I, I guess like the other thing was like again, I was watching behind the scenes, and it's a it's a really you know the the Star Trek ones that do have some fun behind the scenes kind of footage. And I think the other thing that like you know Harv Bennett said was just like you could just tell that the crew was just so much more 
like just alive, like in this, like just even like on set. And like, like he said, like specifically like Shatner, you could just tell like his eyes were just like, he was just having a ball with his friends. Like that's what this movie was. It just felt like everybody was just having a really fun time. Oh, I did skip over this. Uh, Ralph McQuarrie of Star Wars fame does return to both design the probe ship that's at the beginning, you know, that's kind of causing all the issues and to storyboard the time travel dream sequence as well. So uh, more, you know, he's known for Star Wars, but he query does get his, his Star Trek licks in there as well at some points. But yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that is, that is it. I'm Great. ready to talk about the movie itself. Star Trek for the voyage home. Sounds good. Spock, as suspected, the probe's transmissions are the songs sung by whales. Whales? Specifically, humpback whales. That's crazy. Who would send a probe hundreds of light years to talk to a whale? It's possible. Whales have been on Earth far earlier than man. Ten million years earlier, and humpbacks were heavily hunted by man. They've been extinct since the 21st century. It is possible that an alien intelligence sent the probe to determine why they lost contact. My God. Spot, could the humpbacks answer to this call? They simulate the sounds, but not the language. We would be responding in gibberish. Does the species exist on any other planet? Negative. Humpbacks were indigenous to Earth. Earth of the past. Well, I have no choice. I must destroy the probe before it destroys Earth. To attempt to do so would be futile, Admiral. The probe could render us neutral easily. I can't just turn away. There must be an alternative. There is one possibility, but of course I cannot guarantee success. We could attempt to find some humpback whales. You just said there aren't any, except on Earth of the past. Yes, Dodger. That is exactly what I said. Well, in that case... Now, wait just a damn Spock, minute. start your computations for time warp. Bones, you come with me. And that was the quote. And this is our time to discuss the fourth Star Trek movie, uh, Star Trek for the Voyage Home. And we're back, by the way, from that quote. But uh, I didn't say we're you're back you're this time. you're you're goddamn right. It's we're ready to <laughs> absolute goddamn <laughs> to the hell, hell we are. The hell, the hell we, we are. are ready to talk about this. <laughs> Always using those colorful metaphors. We are here mm-hmm. on the Bonzilla podcast. So, um, this is a pretty uh, a famous movie within the Star Trek franchise because. Uh, another thing that people a lot of talk about on the bonus features is that they they and we'll talk about this a little bit in the aftermath too. But even people who don't know like Star Trek really that well, they they generally know that there was a movie where they have to save whales. It's it's a pretty ridiculous concept in in, in that way that it kind of like what that like that's what the movie's about. And I really just would not have this movie any other way because it's such a joyous film. Uh, I, I clearly love it because, again, I do, and I'll probably post a picture of it. I do have a poster of this one in my apartment because um, it's a pretty sick poster. It's a pretty nice poster. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I guess I'll just start by saying this. that, And I said this on our, our Rathacon episode that, you know, Rathacon has been 
a movie that's been in my like top 10 for a long time, even before I got like more into Star Trek that I saw it kind of like, you know, kind of in my formative loving film years. And I always like liked it and I always wanted to get more of the Trek. And so like, yeah, so for forever and ever, it's just, it's been a movie that I've just loved. And it's, you know, definitely my top Trek film, yada, 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 as we yada, yada, yada. Every time I watch the voyage home, the voyage home just inches closer to that spot because it's just a movie that just makes me smile, makes me laugh, just really showcases what I love about these characters, really showcases the strengths of the Star Trek crew. It gets to be silly. It gets to be nonsensical in the best way. And it's just so much fun and, and a bold choice. It's almost like, to an extent, like a Thor Ragnarok before there was a Thor Ragnarok. It's just like, we've done all these really serious films and like really serious sci-fi and, you know, kind of the big epicness. And now we're just going to do the silly thing. And it's so much fun. And it's so good. It's so good. And it just completes this arc on such a satisfactory level. And if there's any movie that proves to like why I love that original series characters and specifically the original series cast i think it's this one because i think everybody's on the top of their game here um kind of going back real quick it's funny that you talk about how this is the one where you say like oh it's the one with the whales like it's like that's how i always knew about this one Mm -hmm. and what's funny about it is that you hear that and then to a lay to the layman you, you just don't really have a sense of what that means mm-hmm. like, you know it's like what is that like an in joke or is like if you don't know anything about the plot it's just kind of like a weird thing to say about the movie and there's so much about it that it, it's funny because you say it's the one with the whales but there's so many other factors about the film like that you know it's the continuation of a of another couple other films um and that it, you know it's kind of part of this unofficial trilogy um the fact that it's a time travel movie to the modern day and the fact that it really plays more as a light-hearted comedy adventure than there's just you just don't get a sense of any of that when like people say like oh it's the one with the whales like right like honestly the thing about the whales becomes like maybe like the fifth kind of like whoa like this is the direction that they kind of went with it and it's funny that you say that about like I actually would go further. I don't know if you could even call use the Ragnarok comparison. Right. Because you know I think because what's so interesting about it is like again, one of the reasons I watch saying this cuz it's like such an overblown cliche and it's kind of eye-rolling to hear. But the thing about it is like you watch a movie like this like this Star Trek movie. And I know I kind of said this about, in many ways, I think I've said this about all the Star mm-hmm. Trek movies, but this movie out of all the Star Trek movies is the movie that you could not make today. Mm-hmm. Like you just, there, there's just, nobody would accept this movie. I mean, there's like people, like what happens, especially in like film Twitter, it's like, there's a lot of people who say like, well, they want like a movie like this. Like, let's just get a movie where they go on a road trip or whatever. And then, but n- nobody really wants to like, you know, then they make that movie and then nobody really wants that. They just think that they want that. I'm not saying that, you know, that wouldn't be awesome, but that's what this movie is. This movie is, is really devoid of any other type of, 
action sci-fi movie tropes or anything and not even like oh it's like that but light it's like it's like those type of sci-fi action movies but light no it has kind of what you said at top it has no space battles at all right it has no villain really Mm -hmm. like at all um there's really no action other than kind of like more whimsical like it like road trippy type things i mean it really plays like a road trip movie in 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 some ways like a, a more proper example would be is like i was thinking like it reminds me of a lot of of the first ant-man where mm. like one of the crazy things about that first ant-man movie is like it's quite a bit of time before any action starts like at least traditional punchy punch action mm-hmm. like you know there's a villain and everything but it's mostly just Ant-Man hijinks for like a good hour of the movie before anything happens. And that's kind of what this, it, it reminded me more in that vein of, of film. Um, but overall, I mean, to me, this is one of the top five, if not maybe in the top three mm-hmm. for me. And I mean, there was, there was a brief moment in maybe like the first half hour where I was almost going to consider like, I, I almost considered like, is this, even, do I even enjoy this more than Wrath of Khan? And there's a so, and then what happened is as the movie went on, I think it became like maybe equal, but for a different reason. It's yeah. kind of like in that in that vein, yeah. Because there's some there's some macro things about the movie that I, I I have questions about, but overall, I mean, it's just it's just like a feel good fun time, yeah. And it's so stress free. You yeah, know what really I mean? Is. And, and and of all the movies, it's the movie that plays the most like an like an episode of the show. Yeah, that's what I I was about to say that because I think also for me this movie demonstrates like why there is such a longevity of of Star Trek as I think because it does kind of this movie does kind of capture sort of some of those more silly fun episodes of the original series. Like there really is like, you know, again, we've talked about it, that the trouble with triples episode is just so silly fun in and of itself. Um, And I really feel that like just showcasing sort of this side of Trek, you know, it was just a really good move because I think it it allowed for this style to, you know, to happen in in certain respects uh, down the road with, with, with Trek as well. And again, it just really showcases, I think just the, the core, that core original series crew and just kind of some of their most fun stuff. And did, you did remind me though, I think what was funny is that like one, another quote I got from Harv is, you know, he's talking about how there's really no villain. Like that was kind of one of the big things about the movie. He said, if there's anything, the villain is humanity's choices over like a couple hundred thousand years of just, you know, you know, not caring about its environment and, and the rest of the species. So I thought that was a lot of fun too. Yeah. But. It, it's, one of the things I, I thought was interesting about the movie, because in some ways it, it, it's funny, and, and this is probably because I had seen the movie before, so I, I, I approached it a little bit more relaxed, like I was making dinner and, and, and things like that. Um, and um, I felt a little bit more like I could just casually watch it, but I don't mean that in a in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that I found interesting about the movie is that it's it should feel more inconsequential than it does. Like, and what I mean by that, though, is, like, obviously for the story, they bring you in on the adventure and, like, you know, and 
you know, they need to get this and now, oh, now they need to rescue this person. And oh my God, how are they going to get back? And it's played more for kind of like light adventure fun. Like it, 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 there's not like the huge stakes of any of like the previous film. Like, you know that everything is going to work out at the end mm-hmm. of it. And to a bigger degree, the movie opens up on like, we're we're picking up from the events of the last movie with some pretty dire consequences. And then they just kind of go on this whole adventure and then they wrap it up with what they did at the, in the prologue. But then they kind of not really, (laughs) which I think is kind of interesting, but so it really, and it really feels kind of like a fun detour um, from the preceded, from what preceded it. So in some ways, in that way, it should feel inconsequential. But I feel the key is, is why it doesn't, in my opinion, is that it feeling like a show is the key. It like, because everything about it is tapping into what you like about Star Trek. Mm-hmm. It's like, it, 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 it's so, it's just right from the veins, what you like about a Star Trek episode. And it gets you to love the characters. It gets you to have some fun with the adventure. And it's got like some of like the bigger, like moral and thematic stuff that, you know, has a point, but still kind of, it, it's not a downer. It like kind of, le- like it, it kind of has a sense of like majesty and wonder to everything. And, you know, it, it, it it's a, and that's why, is it Meyer or Myers? Who is it? Myers. Myers. Hit. Wait, no, wait. I, I think, think it's I, Meyer. I think it's Meyer. You're right. You're yeah. right. You're right. So Meyer working on it, which is so funny to me, is that in the two films that he's worked on, is that for somebody who kind of approaches it from more of like, you know, not like a well-initiated or as-initiated Star Trek person, he kind of gets Star Trek in a way. That, like, Or at least he has a better handle on the pulse of like what like an audience member wants out of Star Trek without... Um, betraying any of like without betraying the source material and it's and it just makes it more and more strange that the motion picture which is trying to be kind of like a bigger more grandiose episode of a episode of star trek versus this which is just a feature length version of the movie without any other pretense and it works so much better so that's like my long-winded way of saying like it, it playing like an episode ends up being it's like biggest strength when mm-hmm. it could have been a weakness. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. It's just like, I just like want to get into it because like I, I do one of the things I, I I've always really liked about this movie is that again, just like the, 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 in terms of like what the, the stakes of the movie are, cause it's basically like legitimately like th- they put this movie into like the stakes have never been higher. Like, world where it's like like the earth is literally like destroying getting destroyed by this probe like legitimately like the stakes have never been higher the world is going to end and the solution is we got to go back in time to find whales like that is like just so so great to me and i think i really like like dug into that this time where it's literally like they're like like the earth is like in dire peril and immediately the answer is okay let's go let's go get some humpback whales well and it, and it's all done with like a level of levity to like um like for instance like all right it's whales and it's like well how are we going to get whales like well like well we'll, we'll just time travel we'll just time yeah. travel back like you know it's like it's everything is done with more of a leisurely pace 
that once again shouldn't work and especially like and it's funny that this is part of kind of like in retrospect it's it's kind of part of an unofficial trilogy I think that there may have been a little bit more of like maybe a backlash to that approach of like this is the third movie of like this yeah. storyline and we're wrapping it up. Um but uh but it works. Yeah, it does. So, um start talk I want to start talking about the movie cuz I think like a lot of what's fun about the movie is in the details mm-hmm. of everything. So, you know, we we basically open up uh we we open up with a dedication to the Challenger which should be mentioned the the Challenger disaster which, you know. <laughs> yeah, that was the one thing I was going to ask. I didn't I I kind of like that's when I was cooking. I looked over and, and then I saw it and then it kind of passed and I didn't know what it was. Yeah, yeah, so it's a uh, the the Challenger explosion happened during the production of this film and everybody on board uh you know Harvin Nimoy especially felt that it was good to put a dedication and they didn't want to save it for the end. They wanted to put it up straight at the front. So I thought, you know, good for them and very touching uh, even to this day. Uh but after our our title sequence, we we get into uh the introduction of this mysterious probe uh, ship that this uh, you know uh, Federation star cruiser with the first ever Star Trek female captain should also be noted um, comes across and they're trying to figure out like what's what's going on with it and it's you know but eventually we kind of figure out it's like sending this mysterious signal and it's just a power drain on everything and by the time it reaches Earth it's like ionizing the atmosphere and you know getting like everything crazy so it's like basically like this thing's on a warpath and nobody knows how to to figure it out uh, and how to stop it. Um, I also do love this, this, uh, these series of movies constantly taking elements from motion picture and you're like, we're just going to do it better. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, honestly, a hundred percent. Cause even like in the motion picture, like I, I do love again, that the ship is actually like this mysterious pose actually in the process of like destroying earth or like basically like, making it uninhabitable whereas like mm-hmm. even, even in the motion picture like didn't get that far so that was a kind of a nice touch too um but yeah no you're you're exactly right this is essentially kind of the same basic idea as the motion picture but just way just just way more kind of streamlined and 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 and, and better like just better showcased i think and there, it's also funny because there is a bold element to the film where there are elements of it where it really is just kind of like, so, like the the thing, like, cause in in the motion picture, it was like it's this force, and the whole thing was like, what is it? Like, and it's it's the biggest deal that like this thing is like this mysterious object that's going to like you know you know destroy everything. In this one, it's just kind of more of like an obligatory like. Oh yeah, there, there's there's a thing, and it's yeah. and it's gonna and it's gonna destroy, and then and then when we get rid of it, and then the problem solved. Like it's like, yeah, and 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 I, you do have to give some credit that there are no if ands or buts about that. Like there isn't like some like again, if you did this movie today, you would either need to do one of two things: either you would need to kind of play it like the motion picture. And I don't even want to say today, like any other movie would have just played it like the motion picture where it was a big deal. Or like at the end, there's like some twist that it's like it's bigger than you even thought it was going to be. Mm. Like, but like, and not to skip to the end, but like when you get to the end, it was like, oh no, yeah, it was just like a big thing that spoke whale. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Two two quick facts about the probe. Uh, The wub, wub, wub noise that it makes as it moves, that's Nimoy. Mm-hmm. 
So because like they were trying to, you know, the, the classic director story of like Nemo is trying to say, no, it should sound like this. And then the guy's like, well, why don't you just do it? So he recorded the wub, 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 and then they distorted it a little bit. The other thing is the other kind of another favorite story about it is that in this beginning scene, the Paramount executives loved the movie, but they wanted to give the probe subtitles because mm. they're like, what's it saying? Kind of ruins the point though. Right. And then Nemo, no, Nemoy and Meyer was like, no, that's like the whole point is that we don't know what it's saying. And so right. they want, they want out. Um, also before we get to what's going on with the truck crew, I do want to kind of skip to this other scene where we kind of get a recap of what happened last time with the Klingon dude, basically calling Kirk. A oh, terrorist. Well, I, that's like the big thing. It's like the, yeah. the big, because that's like kind of like what makes it part of the unofficial trilogy is that, and it's kind of cool because it's a direct consequence to everything that happened in the last film. And then this one, it's like, Starfleet are meeting up with some some Klingon officials and their whole narrative is that Kirk went on a on a war path that like basically got um like this group of Klingons killed right and they're uh, still like off during like- during like a whole peace treaty like and like uh, like peace negotiations and again they bring up this again what the Klingons thought the genesis to fight was was just like this thing of war as opposed to creation so yeah, so basically they're demanding that Starfleet like bring Kirk to justice and and bring him to the Klingon people so they can put him on trial. Mm-hmm. And then eventually like Sa- Sara comes in and is just basically like takes is giving no like is, is taking no shit. He's just like you know he's just talking about like you drew hey you guys drew first blood. It was you who killed his son. Like like do you what do you defend like murderers or something like that or whatever it is. And then there's like the big arguments and eventually it's kind of comes down to the Starfleet council is already like you know there's like nine counts on the on the enterprise cruises like record now that they are well, brought they're got to bring brought into this trial it, it's fun. two things once again it's hilarious how the klingon the the whole Kling relationship with the klingons continues to be this like big staple of the star Tre- of the star trek films and the series and yet it continues to be just kind of like this thing going on in the background like yeah. it just continues to I, be like oh meanwhile while this is happening and then the second thing um is no wonder this truce takes so long because not only like the klingons are being like well there will be no peace until he's dead and and then and then so and meanwhile and then like sark's coming in like you know playing gotcha games too and like yeah. he, he's just like he's like ooh, bert like he's like well no wonder this this relationship never gets i do better. i do like how like again completely unintentionally because there was like no long-term plan but like this stuff does kind of get to play into what eventually happens in star trek 6 which i think right right funny. Yeah. also i hope you I hope you were kept your eyes out because there were a lot more Star Trek aliens in these in these councils. There's I, a yeah, lot more. We find like the cat creatures were finally there. They're like the blue aliens from Journey of the Babel. Like these weird like like big mask things. Like yeah, there was a lot like of these flathead mask guys. Yeah, there was a, there was a lot cool. going on in that scene. But but in some ways, like that's why this is another way in which like this film is playing more like the episode of the TV because kind of like I said, so like this happens and the whole thing about the the you know this kind of like tribunal situation Mm -hmm. and you know it's not inconsequential like it 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 is like it does set up kind of the scenario that all the characters are in right it it, it does play a role that way i mean 
on on a whole story wise it, it kind of comes and goes mm-hmm. but it does play like the tv where it, it's still keeping that logically in play from the previous film and then we know that right. it's gonna yeah play it's, it's showing you that there are cons you know there are consequences because it's like again like the last film they stole the enterprise and then and then blew it up mm-hmm. and and went on this kind of like unauthorized adventure of course there's gonna be again like sort of the chain of command is gonna come down on them so we get that scene. And again, again, I think it's just kind of fun and kind of it continues to expand the universe to a degree. And then we, we cut to Vulcan where, you know, the Enterprise crew are all there. They've revived Spock. Spock's trying to kind of get back in the swing of things. And they have all agreed that, okay, like these charges are out there for them, that they, they're going to turn themselves in. You know, because that was Kirk's plan or the whole thing. It's just like his little thing was just he was going to, you know, do what he could for his friend Spock, you know, and, you know, it ended up being resurrected. But at the end of the day, like he was going to accept the consequences. So they've been kind of exiled on Vulcan, you know, and and so they've decided as a group that they will go back to Earth and face the consequences for their actions and and everything to that extent. Um Again, just it's just at this point that, especially I think with Meyer and Nimoy and Harv on board, that these guys just kind of have a sense of how the crew interacts with each other. Because like, even there's a small scene, you kind of get everybody agreeing, and then you have, uh, you know, uh, you have uh, Scotty kind of commenting on like they have to, you know, they have the bird of prey from the Klingons, and he's like, you know, like, you know, engineering the ship is easy, reading Klingon that's difficult. Like, and he kind of has all this stuff. And then, like, of course, Bones is just like, why do we have to go back on a ship that smells so bad? Like, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. There's just, like, the fun discussions. And, and one, would... one of the things I did like about this, too, is that in one of my kind of, like, criticisms about the films has been, like, you know, it, it doesn't really feel... Like, it just feels like they kind of, like, either separate or do, don't do do the amount of justice to the core Enterprise family as, like, a crew. Yeah. Um, like, usually somebody always gets, like... Um, like the the draws a sh- uh, short straw um but this one was like it kind of opened up and it's like you know they're you know they're getting ready you know to launch and they're outside the warbird and and he goes down the line and he acknowledges like everybody on the crew and it was just kind of nice that it's, it's kind of like this message like it's gonna be like the gang it's mm-hmm. it's it's not gonna be like a third party character it's like sat it's not savic and other characters that we're gonna focus on like this adventure is going to be the core enterprise family yeah and i and i like that that aspect about it like mm-hmm. just introducing um and then i i i really enjoyed so overall note about spock in this movie yeah he's like so they kind of play it's interesting when they just all the stuff they're doing with spock is because they they've just found ways and ways to make his whole deal interesting that's another thing it's like spock's whole deal should be like super tired at this point like it's like we get it like he doesn't feel like you know it's like oh everything it's like you know humans aren't logical things like that but they're able to, and maybe most of it is like just Nimoy, and he's like just really good at playing it. But I liked everything that they were doing, and I liked it essentially because he's like this new, slightly reborn Nimoy who's kind of just has a new grasp on his memories as much as he can. So they kind of play this more like naive, innocent, yes, uh, Spock as opposed to like. I gotta. I have to relearn everything. And what's this? And what's like? It's very easy that they could have just been like a. This movie could have really just been like we're starting from scratch with. And his whole thing is like, 
uh, like, well, he's got to relearn everything. And I felt like they found the, a delicate balance between telling that story but not making it tedious. Right. I think there's there's kind of almost like a, a like a childlikeness with with how Nimoy kind of interacts with all the kind of the his memories and the kind of the strange things he encounters along the way. Like they Oh, and and it, and it goes down to like how characters treat him too. Like yeah. there's the bit at the end where he's like, "Well, it's like I I couldn't figure this out, so I took a guess." And he's like, "You Spock?" That's that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And then, he, and then Spock's like, what? <laughs> like, so like there that that was that was pretty but, good. But he has this he has this great scene um in like I guess he's kind of at like a, a relearning computer or whatever, yeah. where he's like kind of like getting back up to speed on some stuff. And the computer is like this really weird fast talking computer that's just spouting out like um different facts of like everything right. that you could yeah. imagine like yeah, math, yeah. math problems earth history philosophy like, like, it's, like it's like history yeah so it goes so it goes through that and it's like really like like you as a human like as, as a viewer like you're you're not meant to like you, you only kind of get because it speaks so fast i think it's i think it really kind of showcases like how Spock's brain actually works. Like when, when you see on the original series or any of these movies, when he can kind of come up with like something in an instant, like you kind of see like, he just has this really fast brain. Well, this was like the first really well-directed scene of the movie because it goes through all that. And then the computer's like, it's like, blah, 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 blah. How do you feel? And then it just stops. And he's like, what? And he's like, 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 yes, (laughs) Spock's so confused and everything like that. And it was just like, it was such like a poignant, I felt like that moment really tastefully handled the whole like, oh, Spock and feeling and everything. Cause <laughs> it wasn't like you feel for, I guess like you do feel for him a, because as I always say, it's Nimoy and he's great, but you also kind of, you know, the context of how that happens. So, you know, it's more of like a, he just needs a refresher. It's not like he completely forgot. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I always like getting scenes with him and his mother. Um, I like Sarek, but you know, it's always nice to have a, uh, yeah, so. I think it's just a sweet scene because I think just because uh, again, it's like I've always really loved Journey to Babel as like an episode because I think it really showcases the different ways in which like you know Spock is with his mother and Sark and Sarek, and I think like this scene really showcases just the relationship between Spock and his mom, and, and you know by his mom being human and trying to like remind him like the computer knows that you're human, it's trying to also reintroduce that element to you and. Like, listen, like, remember, like, your friends, like, they sacrificed, you know, themselves, you know, and then eventually it's just like, you know, like, they, they did, like, you know, the needs of the one that they they, they, they they took your life over theirs, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then Spock, of course, responds like humans are, you know, illogical creatures. And of course, he's just like, the, they are, you know, his mom's like, they, they are. Right, right. They are. And, and that's why, and because it, it plays it as like, he's not dumb. Like, he, like, he he kind of gets it like he doesn't experience it but he kind of get it like again the difference being once again this is something that this movie does better than the motion picture because in the motion picture it was very tedious it was very because he was just like i like i'm i'm so closed off from like feeling anything and i get that that was the point of the film well i think it's it's just because like in that movie he's trying to purge it and again well, I, like, get I, it. I, I, I like understand. that i like that story a little bit more than you do but like that's the thing like because that's his choice whereas here mm. it wasn't really his choice it's that he is trying to kind of rediscover this because like even he says to his mother it's like 
you know, I will deem them worthy because you deem them worthy. Like I will deal like these feelings. And it's like, he is trying to kind of unlock that side of him. But, right. Like, and what I'm saying is I, I just like, for me, it's like the way in which this film handles that. I think all the ideas yes. of like, what does it mean to feel kind of come off a little bit more naturally. And, and I think it fits in. with Yeah. The and I a hundred percent agree. And it also allows Spock's character to be really funny in this movie, which I oh, look at too. he is so funny. Like, and then and then another thing that I like as they move forward, like there's there's some really good Spock bones moments in this mm-hmm. film. Yeah, that play off of the context of like, you know, it's not nearly as it. it you can tell that like bones, like you know, like we went through this whole movie where he basically just like came out and like. like revealed like his like oh like spock is like is a good friend like you know like i miss spock and you know yeah they went through like he had his yeah he had he had his culture in him and he went through this whole journey of like you know he was part of me and like you know that whole thing where they're like you know he actually is like a good friend and i I miss him and i want him back but they do have this good scene because they eventually leave and they say goodbye to the savik so bye savik uh have fun on vulcan um and eventually like they're kind of you know, they're, they're in this situation where they're flying back to earth, but they're getting like the distress calls and they're all very confused on what's happening. And so eventually like, you know, or and, and, and is trying to like, you know, weed everything out and then Spock's helping her out and bones goes up to him and, you know, he's like, we have stuff to talk about. And it's basically like, he's just basically like, well, like what, what, what was it like to, you know, you, you were dead. Like, you know, that's like, what was that like? And Spock's just like, uh, you know, we, we, it's something that we, you know, you'd have to have like a mutual knowledge to like, really like understand. No, he was like, uh, from, I mean, what's, what's this, oh, from God, what I remember, the... he was like, well, it would be impossible for me to say without comparison. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yes. And that like, made and then, me laugh. I was like, and then, no, Bones awesome. is like, you mean I have to die to understand death? <laughs> he's like, excuse me, doctor, I'm getting another distress saw. And of course, like Bones is just like, <laughs> I'm sure you are. That's like, what it was. That was the bit. And, and that's where, it, it, again, the way it just played was so because it was so easy to be like a because again they the characters are with um bones and kirk you know they are bouncing off of spock because he doesn't quite remember everything like it used to be Mm -hmm. but it's not like a there's a version of this movie where it's like oh why don't you remember anything and why are you like so distant and cold and like you can't and like you know but they don't overplay that it's just kind of like there's just certain elements and euphemisms that he that he doesn't quite have a grasp on right like i said it's like again just sort of the childlike naivete where it's not like it's not like him from the original series again like where they're first introduced and he's just like i'm totally vulcan it's just like he is still exploring all this aspect of him like coming back to life so i and think he, and he's also so polite too where was he's like he's like well this is where we'd have like a philosophical debate it's like oh i didn't have any time to go over philosophy yes <laughs> like he's just so nice mm-hmm. about it um yeah so yeah that, that 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 all stuff is really good so on earth uh at this point the probe has made it to earth like, and it's like all everything's basically all the power is going out the oceans are going nuts the 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 cloud cover over the uh the earth is now 70 percent. it's totally blocking out the sun i did like the scene where the one guy's like even with reserve energy we can't live without the sun and then the the federation president's like i'm aware of that like (laughs) i know um also about this sequence i do want to mention that um both uh, majo barrett and janice rand do make cameos 
whereas Janice Rands was always very limited. The Marshall Barrett, like Nurse Chapel character, was supposed to have a larger role here. Was very cut down. She was very upset and and blamed like sort of the the weird relationship Star Trek had with Roddenberry. But you know, worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. But anyways, so eventually, Sarek tells the Federation president like you should send like a, just a planetary distress call. Like tell all ships not to come up. Like while well, we still have time. Because obviously Sarek was there to defend Spock and, and his friends, and now he's kind of stuck on the planet as well. So eventually, the uh, the um, uh, the the bird of prey gets the distress call, and Uhura plays it, and basically, like again, it's just like you know, the the oh the, the isn't it kind of by the way you said the bird of prey is, isn't it kind of weird to like you your your mind just goes to so the Enterprise gets it, yeah but they it don't is, have the Enterprise but I think that's also really fun because there's also a moment where like Scotty basically says like you know I've I've connected the bird of prey to like the uh, the, the Federation computers. So we have all that stuff. We have all the like Confederation stuff and I've replaced all of the Klingon food pods so that, you know, I won't get a sour stomach anymore. And I like Kirk's like, is that what that was? Like, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. But eventually they, they play this message and, you know, Kirk obviously is immediately going to like, well, we need to save earth. Like he's no question about it. Like we need to save earth. So like, what, what's the, you know, what's the probe signal? Like what's causing all this? Cause the Federation president's like, it's messing with our oceans. It's ionized our atmosphere. All power is going out. Like literally like save yourselves. Don't come to earth. If you come to earth, like you will die essentially. And so I also love this because they go play the signal and Spock is immediately like, you know, in Spock mode and in, in great Spock mode where he's like, you know, it's very weird that, you know, this this probe is seemingly, un, you know, unintentionally destroying the Earth. It's like searching for something clearly. And, you know, and it's like, you know, oh, like you think it wouldn't just, you know, oh, it's just like, yeah, it's way of saying hello is is destroying humanity. And of course, Spock's like, it would be like, uh, you know, it would be, you know, foolish to assume that like it's only talking to humanity. And then they're basically kind of figuring out. And I love this little moment where they basically are like, you know, is Mech expecting the Earth's ocean? So it could be searching for something underwater. And I like that Kirk goes up to Uhura and basically like, can you make this sound like it's underwater? And Uhura is like, sure, like, why not? And I just love it because I think this movie does give a chance to really showcase why that Enterprise crew is so special in terms of their skills. Mm-hmm. So like Uhura as a communicator is not just like this communicator, but she can, she can alter it to be like, I've altered it about for density and like water level. So like, here's what it sounds like underwater. And, 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 and I, cause I love it too. Cause Kirk literally says like, so this is what it would sound like underwater. And she's like, yeah, yes, I, yes, it is. Another thing I wanted to bring up, you're absolutely right. And I think that's one of the reasons I really enjoy this movie in particular is like everybody kind of gets that little moment. Um, but I, I just, the thing about Spock, which I thought was great is that there is actually, they play into a story reason, like why he's a little bit more Spockish and why, you know, in terms of like, he's kind of like, it's kind of like Spock in this film is a little bit clear headed cause he's so logical. Yeah. Like, you know, um, but you know, politely so mm-hmm. um, that, you know, he just kind of like, instantly comes up with like these little like well what if it's this what if it's this well we could just time travel <laughs> oh i i want to get to that scene too so eventually they play this underwater thing like it, like the the probes noise as if it were underwater and spock immediately is like if my suspicion is correct there will be no answer to this call 
And so he goes off and he's like, where are you going? I'm off the, to prove my theory. And I love like Kirk's like, Bones, you stay here. And he's like, nope, somebody's got to watch that guy. Yeah. So eventually they go back and it's like they go through and it's like they talk about the humpback whale. So they're like, yes, it's a humpback whale call. Humpback whales in there in this continuity have been extinct since the 21st century. Um, and they're trying to figure out like, you know, what they can do. And it's like, well, Kirk's like, well, are there humpback whales in on the other planet? Nope. They were indigenous to earth. Can't we just destroy the probe? Like it's already like, you know, getting rid of all the power of everything else. Like we would just be in that same phase. Like we got to do something. And of course this whole sequence is just perfectly written to just my fancy of, of these three characters. Cause again, this is your kind of like this core defines like this original crew. So what happens is Kirk's like, well, there's gotta be something. We can't just let earth die. And Spock's like, well, there is one thing, so I, I don't, I can't guarantee success. Like, what is it? Well, we just got to find some humpback whales to answer the call. And then Bones is like, but you said there were no humpback whales except of Earth in the past. And then Spock's like, yes, doctor, that is what I said. And then Bones is just like, well, what do you, and he immediately knows what's going oh, down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, he's I mean, points, he these points to Kirk. He's like, Kirk, don't you dare. And Kirk's just like, immediately like, Mr. Spock, begin computations. For time warp. So my here is my question, just out of just clarification. So what like that? What is like the history of like the time of time travel in the series? Because I know they've done it. So is so, it like something you can do but probably shouldn't do that? So many? the exact method that is in this movie, the slingshot around the sun, was accidentally discovered by the Enterprise as a means of time travel. Mm-hmm. in an episode of the original series uh, where they go back to the 60s. And then the basic idea of time travel is in this original series, at certain points, they've done episodes where it's like they will send, they'd send the Enterprise back to like study something. But the general rule of thumb is like, you know, don't change history, but, right. you know, but you can kind of like study. And then obviously... You know, there's other means of time travel, like the Guardian of Forever and everything like that, you know, in, in that right. episode. But but the but that was, again, like a little mini connection to the original series was this slingshot around the sun was the original means of time travel within the Star Trek universe. Well, yeah, I mean, the the casual nature in which because it's not like a big like we got to time travel. Like, it's no, because like, it's, it's been the way we got to do it. Yeah. So and eventually, like like within this time period, like, you know, eventually there's like a whole like. There's like time cops and stuff, which is a whole other thing uh, that happens on Deep Space Nine. Um, but but the, the the idea is it's like it's a known thing at this point, and it's like not necessarily it's like doable, and it's probably like you shouldn't just do it on your own. But like it's like a known thing that time travel is a possibility. The other the other thing I will say about the time travel in this movie is if there is one, I know this is skipping ahead. But if there is one major, if there's one thing that kind of tonally tells you how seriously, or what level of seriousness to take the 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 stakes of the movie, is is that you know they need to you know they need to get the material to build a tank, mm-hmm. you know, and then they go to like this this factory, and then you know basically they Scotty gives a formula that will allow these people to make the tank that they need. Right. For transparent aluminum. Right. And, and, you know, so, and then the guy's like, you know, this guy's like, oh, this is like so brand new. And like, you know, this will be money signs for me. And then like, blah, blah, blah. And then like Bones takes Scotty to the side and he's like, you know, if we give him this, this formula, 
it'll change the course of history. And Scotty's like, well, I mean, how do you know he didn't make it up? <laughs> and I'm like, that was, I, I was I like, get, wonderful. I can tell you could yeah. never, never get away with that today. That, that was 100% a Meyer contribution because he said himself, it's just like him and Harv talked about it. And it's just like, yeah, just like, you know, just they're basically like, just get it out of the way. Like they they have to do this. This is the way it has to go. Just get it out of the way. Just like they they have to say that. Boom. Like that's that's everything's happens for a reason. Um, because so, they're but anyway. So, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So basically, and then we also get this other scene where basically, you know, again, sort of like them just sort of showcasing like, yes, this is ridiculous, but we're going along with it. Which is when when McCoy is just like, is just like. You mean to tell me that we're going to go back in time to the 20th century to find some whales, bring them back and, and save the earth. And it's like, yeah, if you have a better idea, like, let me know now. It's like even Kirk knows that it's like absurd that they're doing this, but it's like legitimately the only way they can conceive to like have humpback whales answer this call. So just again, great stuff of just like, you know, we're doing the time travel thing. It is ridiculous, but like we're going with it because it is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um. So eventually they time warp. They do do their slingshot around the sun. And they make their way to mid 1980s San Francisco. As Spock puts it, he knows this by the pollution content in the atmosphere. Uh, that he knows that this is um, uh, 20th century uh, Earth. Which Meyer said was still one of his favorite lines. Because it's the first line he wrote for the movie. Was that little joke. Uh, this whole setup of them landing just of them talking about just like nothing will define this this whole scene for me was when Kirk says this is a primitive and paranoid culture <laughs> it just makes me laugh every single time um, and I'm talking about like I'm sure their customs will be strange to us and even a little bit later after they land when McCoy's just like looking around he's like it's a miracle these people got out of the 20th century like just just the like shade well, I mean I, I did take some note of some of my favorite um, like oh like we're in the present day because yeah. it's always a thing that I think at least for me as a viewer, I always kind of have to recontextualize like, oh, th- that's how like the timeline and that's how this world works is that, you know, it, it always goes back to what was a Star Trek Beyond when they're listening to rock music or yeah. Beastie Boys. Yeah. And then they're like, I think this is classical music. Yeah. So it's like it, that's kind of gives you that's a really good, like quick way of like telling you mm-hmm. like where they're at in time. But like some of I'm trying to think of like I, I did take note of some of what my favorite ones uh, like obviously the one that just kind of made me laugh is all the stuff about money. Like just, yes. just like, well, they still, it's like, all right. And, and you know what I did like about it was that, that none of them are from that time, but you can tell who's a little bit more cultured with mm-hmm. like the common man, let's say, even if it was from that time. So you kind of get a sense that like bones and Kirk are people who have at least a little bit more knowledge of how to deal with the common folk. Right. And like they handle the situation. They still have a few moments where they're like, Oh my God, this time period. But like, whereas you get to like somebody like, you know, Chekhov and Scotty who like have no idea how to like, you know, socially interact with people of the time period. For sure. For sure. But like, so with like, you know, Kirk's like, it's like, okay, well, you know, they still used money here, so we got to get some of that. <laughs> that's that's great, too, because then they go and he sells the... Oh, the glasses. 
Oh, that was funny. Where he's like, he's like, he's like, that was a present from you know, from from Doctor McCoy. McCoy. It's like that's the beauty of time travel, Spock. They will be again. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't know that I that, I did that no, not really. But that made me laugh. But then he's like, how much would it be? Well, I th- uh, for this a hundred dollars. Is that a lot? <laughs> and then the guy's just like, eh. you know. <laughs> and, uh, then, and then my second favorite one about money was later on when they're at dinner. And when he's he's having pizza, yeah, with uh, with um, what's her name, Gil- Jillian, uh, yeah, and uh, you know, and then she's like, "Well, you're gonna tell me that you don't." It's like I bet next you're gonna tell me they don't have money in the future. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, yeah, there's some really just fun stuff. Like I love, so they eventually land in Golden Gate Park, and I like just the absolutely banal conversation these two garbage men are having about like my wife wants a toaster oven or whatever. And they're just like run off. And of course you get a classic. Remember where we parked, but then yes, yes. Yeah. And then of <laughs> course, one too. of the most like a, a extreme classic where we just hard cut to day San Francisco with all these fools looking around. And then they run right in front of a taxi cab. It's like, what's where you're going? Dumbass. And then Kirk looks around. He's like a double dumbass on you. <laughs> like just, the most nonsensical insult, but yet I want to use that all the time. Like yeah, double, double dumbass on you. Double, double dumbass on you. And then when he's going off to get money, and he, he's like looks at the rest of his crew and he's like, like, like spread around. You look like a bunch of like a cadet review. And then like, all the other guys are just like, all right, like what are we doing here? Um, so they split in the teams. So the other thing that happens, by the way, is that um, the time travel like was not was not easy on the bird of prey and basically like the, the Klingon the energy, this, these dilithium crystals basically got like completely drained and that like, you know, they're cloaked for the sense of like not being noticed on earth, but it's like, they need to get like a way to like repower, which is not easy. It's not easy even in the future. So then basically Spock theorizes like, well, if we just take like these nuclear photons, like, you know, that could, that could easily re recrystallize it. So then they're split up in the three teams where Uhura and Chekhov are tasked with finding the nuclear vessels uh, to where they can get some, some nuclear energy. Uh, or um, Sulu, uh, Bones, and Scotty are tasked with finding out how they can get a whale tank to fit these creatures, which is another line earlier in the movie where, where, where Kirk is in the, the bay of the, um, the bird of prey and he's talking to Scotty. It's like, how, how, can you fit some like like we need to fit some humpbacks in here and scott is just like humpbacked people <laughs> like he has no idea and he's yeah, like yeah. whales scott we need to find whales and it's like fun but anyways and then uh kirk and spock are gonna find the whales because they 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 know there's some whale song they've tracked it but they need to find where they are and so basically we kind of get these adventures of all three of these different groups of people um so yeah, we get the the great scene with Uhura and and uh, Chekhov where they're asking everybody about the Wessels, which I know was Nimoy's one of Nimoy's favorite scenes because he's just like it's just a funny idea of like just some Russian dude walking around San Francisco looking for nuclear submarines and nuclear nuclear boats. Um, just some fun moments with uh, the I guess we'll just start real quick with the uh, the the Sulu and Bones and Scotty stuff because it's like. There's some fun stuff where it's just like they they're like how do we find everything and there's the giant yellow pages advertisement which was really speaks of the times, uh, the 
Scotty in the plant where, you know, they eventually give the guy the aluminum, uh, 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 uh the, the, uh, the, the formula, but this whole thing where, where Scotty's pretending to be this like major, like engineer from Scotland and, and bones is like his assistant. And this whole thing where it's just like, Scotty's trying to fake anger and he's like, you know, uh, they don't know about my tour. I flew in millions of miles and bones has to quickly be like thousands, thousands of miles just to come here. Um, and then, and then of course, Scotty gets a little lick and is like, would my assistant be able to come along too? And it's like, of course. And then bones is like, don't push your luck, Scotty, like that sort of thing. And then of course, like the main gist of the main thing we're following is that, um, Kirk and Spock are going to find these whales and eventually they find out that it's at this uh, aquarium uh, across the bay and we get the great scene in the bus of course with the punk which we mentioned a couple times but even this conversation just the initial conversation about like the colorful metaphors and it's just like it's in all the uh, you know it's it's in all the the, uh, the literature of the age it's just how people spoke back then which was just a kind of a gag on like kind of the more modern stuff being considered giants with the same way we consider Shakespeare giants eventually they make their way to the uh, the the aquarium where we do get to meet Dr. Jillian Taylor, who, of course, is Catherine Hicks' character, and they take a tour and they find out a lot about whales. Um, you know, and just kind of this idea of just of showcasing, like, you know, it's like being treated like a real tour. Uh, eventually, they meet the whales, George and Gracie. And um, just, I guess, I love this scene because of where it leads where eventually like they they see the tank and it's all this sort of fun stuff of just like you know them talking about like fun stuff is just like uh, about like hunting to extinctions illogical everything like that but then we eventually get downstairs where they're like okay like we're gonna get a better view we saw the upper we saw the tank from above but we're gonna see a better view of the whales from below and like oh like the whales are leaving soon because we can't feed them here yada 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 and then we get to the point where they're looking at this big whale tank and you just see Kirk looking around because Spock's disappeared. Like, I just love this like wide shot. And like Kirk's just like looking like Shatner just gives these great looks of just like, wait, like where's Spock go? Like, where is he? Then we cut to a view of the tank and Spock has just dove in to mind meld with these whales. And Kirk is just like, Oh my God, like, what are you doing? Like, you know, again, sort of like that, Spock doesn't have that like tact of just like of course like we wait late later or something like he, of course, he just has to mind meld with the whales and 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 uh Catherine Hicks is just going on about how you know like again the, the real life stuff like, we don't know what whale songs mean could be a mating ritual could be navigational stuff and then this old woman in the crowd's like maybe he's singing to that man and eventually like they go upstairs and this whole scene when they when when Spock gets out of the uh the tank is so funny it's so funny. Just all of his hells. It's just like, oh man, like they, they are not the hell your whales. Oh, they told you that the hell they did. Yeah. <laughs> Nimoy has such great comedic timing. It's no wonder to me that his other big directorial hit out of these was three men and a baby for a couple years later, because like he just has a knack for this comedic timing, especially with the Spock character, which we've talked about before. Like he is, he is Spock. And he, he just in, inhabits that role so well that when he is even playing this kind of like this funny sort of like just clueless version of him of just how social cues work and everything like that, it's just brilliant. It's so funny. 
And it's also like impressive just how good he is considering he's pulling double duty as like, as director, you know, director too. Yeah. Too. yeah, it's funny because especially on the bonus features, you literally see him like slating and like like you can see him getting the character and then immediately drop it when the scene stops to like you know discuss like how was the audio like okay what if we did this this time that sort of thing, but this whole thing with Spock and and this whole conversation and then it's just so great and and just I love how. Just the way that they wrote Spock's use of the colorful metaphors and all the hells and the stuff like that is just so great and uh, so much fun. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, because then we get like, because again, you just continue on. There's a walking conversation outside the Golden Gate Bridge where they're trying to walk back, and it's just like let the, Spock just kind of calm down on the colorful metaphors because I love this too. It's like. First of all, like you're not using them correctly, and Spock's immediately like, "Oh, like he's just like literally like, oh, of course, like I'm not. I mean, that would make sense. I'm not using them correctly. Whatever." Um, eventually, Gillian uh, picks them up in her truck, and they more just kind of fun conversations between them, where she's trying to figure out what the hell they're doing. She notes that Spock had said that caused their extinction as opposed to caused their extinction, so like she's already suspicious of these guys. Just love that's like. Like Kirk tries to explain this away by saying that Spock did a little too much LDS at Berkeley in the '60s, and then also like you know you know some of those dipshits trying to from the military trying to teach whales to retrieve torpedoes. Are you? We're not. No, no dipshits here. Uh, Spock also eventually again just says Gracie's pregnant, and she immediately is like, "What the hell's going on? How do you know that? Like, you know, that you told you that all that sort of stuff." And then another great little moment where Kirk's just trying to like, okay, this is obviously not going the way we want it to. Let's, I'm sure we would all be happier if we had a little dinner. And you guys like Italian? And then just this whole little bit of exchange where Kirk and Spock are just like, yes, no, no, yes, yes. I love Italian. And so does he. <laughs> yes. It's great. Which was, by the way, that was improvised uh, by the two of them. Because originally it was just they were supposed to say no and yes at the same time, but they they kind of like worked out the whole like back and forth between them. Um, I just think like I, I just think the chemistry is just on on point here, and I really like how these characters interact with each other. Um, and it it's just like it's I guess it's a little hard to like really like describe as anything other than it's just really so much fun and it's again stress free and joyous that it's just like this is the silly little adventure. That they're they're getting into, love it. Mm-hmm. Um. So, what's well, I guess what's next? So, so again, eventually they bring Spock back to Golden Gate Park, and he just kind of you know goes off and does his own thing to like do whatever computations he needs to do, and Kirk and Jillian go out to dinner, mm-hmm. and this is again just another scene I really like the conversation where you know he's just like. You know, he's like, I like that he tries like old earth beer and like the the look that Kirk gets on his face. He's like, hmm, interesting, like very different from that alcohol in the future. They kind of discuss sort of like what's going to happen to the whales and everything like that. And then it kind of Kirk Kirk in this scene also has maybe one of my favorite Kirk lines ever. Oh, are you talking like it made like even made me swoon a little bit because it was just such like a classy line was when, you know, because eventually they get to the part where he reveals, like, what his deal is to her. And uh, and then she and then she makes a comment. She's like, 
So it's like, so, um, yeah, it's like, so what you're from, you're from outer space. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. <laughs> so that line is, I agree with you. It's one of my I, I, legitimately one of my all time favorite lines in the star Trek series. Yeah. It's so it, it's pretty good. Perf- it's so perfect. It's so, especially the way he says, it's like, no, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. Like it's so it's so good, but then eventually, yeah, and it's like because he's got like the communicator, and she's just like, "I am all ears." And then, like again, he like has to be like the truth. Like he takes a sip of his beer, and he's like, "All right, here we go." And even he can't tell the full truth about it. Like he can't say like he's he's basically like, "I've come. I'm a time traveler from like what you would know as the 23rd century. Uh, I've come back to save two humpback whales." And you can just see in his head, he's like, "Should I tell her to like?" to make sure that the earth isn't destroyed. No, that's way too crazy to repopulate the species. Like, just like, you know, and maybe it's like that gets her on board a little bit and stuff like that. It's just, I do think that the Catherine Hicks casting helps the movie just because there is like, it's just a natural, the way that these two actors bounce off each other, I think just really helps both of those characters in this sequence. Because I think it is like, just to talk about uh, Catherine Hicks' performance and the, and the Gillian Taylor character, like it isn't like the absolute like deepest character ever, but I do think that she does give that like great little like her. She definitely demonstrates the character's passion for the whales, which I think again helps sort of her journey and like you know her her character's passion through the movie. Well, also, I think that is like kind of that outsider function just kind of does naturally lend to Catherine Hicks just kind of showcasing just like an outsider being taken into this world of the future. And I've always just had, I've always just kind of enjoyed where this character goes in the movie to the point where like, if if they ever did, and I'm sure they've done this, but if they, they were like, Nick, like we're doing like, these series of Star Trek one-off comics where you can like just talk about any character and like put them on a story. I'd probably choose this like Jillian Taylor character because I'm really interested in just like, you know, kind of like the, the, the 20th century earth woman, like, and she's, you know, with, with smarts and, and sort of like, again, passion, like what her, how she kind of takes in the future and everything like that. I just, I've always kind of like, liked the character. Yeah, I thought she was fine. <laughs> I think I think she I think she definitely works, especially within the context of the movie. Yeah, I think she's fun. Um, yeah, yeah, I thought she was she was. And, fine. and I think she again she her chemistry with the crew, especially in some of those later scenes, I think like you know really helps. So mm. eventually, we also get um, so and then the other thing is that Hulu, uh, Hulu, Sulu, uh, you know, gets a Huey, and so they're basically that kind of storyline is basically done that they've given this guy the uh you know the the formula he's going to make this tank for them they're going to get the huey they're going to get it at boom so the last major thing they need you know and these these whales are being shipped out the next day so now they got to figure out okay how are we going to get these whales you know kirk's trying to say like listen like we can bring them to the future they won't be hunted here i know you're worried about that so if you change your mind we'll be here in the park you'll be here yeah i'll be here and then she he like disappears and she looks behind him and it's like she's like kind of like is this what is going on? Is this all real? But eventually, what's going on too is that they're that Chekhov and Uhura have snuck into the base, uh, the the nuclear uh, the nuclear ship, and they're taking these these photons so that they can recharge the ship. Eventually, you know, there's people patrolling, so they're kind of being sneaky. Eventually, they are 
kind of caught by, you know, like you kind of see that the rest of them are like, there's a power drain. Something's on our radar. Like something's going on here. The ship, the bird of prey power is so low that, you know, Scotty can only do warping one at a time or, or, you know, beaming one at a time. So Uhura takes the photons with him, but Chekhov gets caught. And eventually, right, like Chekhov is like just basically like, yeah, no, I'm from the future. Like, I, I that's like, that's what I am. Can I go now? Oh, well, what's the sign? It's like, God, like, oh, man, it was just there's just something like, yeah, you're right. Like Chekhov just doesn't get like interacting with like people like this, that he's just mm-hmm. like literally like, here's my here's everything. Like, yes, I'm, I'm from Starfleet. I'm from I'm a commander. So like I can go like, let's, let's let me go. Yeah, well, the, the, the joke would be like, he's like. He's like, um, he's like, I mean, if you keep, it's like, I mean, if you keep joking with me like this, then you're through. It's like, oh, okay. Can I go now? (laughs) We're through. Can I go now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But eventually like, uh, Chekhov, you know, tries to phaser the guy. His phaser doesn't work. He runs off through the ship with a jaunty, like very Russian sounding, like Baroque score happening. Like he's like running through, but eventually he falls down and and gets gravely hurt and they're like okay we got to take him to a hospital because they still think he's like i have like a russian spy so like they want to get the information out of him so they're going to send him to the hospital meanwhile he's missing so they can't leave the so we cut to the next day they've been able to repower the ship but they don't have these whales no actually sorry I, i'm just I, I i know i'm slow on that but it's like i i think that one guy doesn't think he's a russian spy Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, like, it, it, it's funny because they make that joke. And this also shows you, like, how dated the movie is. Because the guy's like, he's like, yeah, it's like, well, it's like, we can't trust. It's like, well, what is he? It's like, well, clearly he's he's a Rusky. And then the other guy's like, he's like, what What are you crazy? No, he. it's like, I mean, he says something. He's like, well, he's a Russian, but he's clearly, like, just like... <laughs> <laughs> Did he say he was retarded? Right, yeah, but there's still, there's, well, the thing is, like, he's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Of course he's a Rusky. Like, but he's right. like, yeah, he's a retarded or something. But then, but they're still going to call Washington. So they still think right, like there's right. something going on here. Mm-hmm. So eventually we got to the next day and, you know, at dinner, you know, Dr. Taylor was like, oh, tomorrow at noon, the big media circus, the whales are getting shipped out. It's going to be a lot of attention. She gets to work the next day and realizes that the whales are already gone. And we get right here, poor Bob, uh, who's like her boss. And he's like, oh, by the way, yeah, we were like, we didn't want a big media scrum. So we just shipped him out overnight. We thought it would be easier. And you're like, you didn't let me say goodbye. And she gives him the biggest possible slap. And you could absolutely tell the actor was not expecting a slap that hard. Like she, like Catherine Hicks like whales it into him. Oh yeah. Uh, pun not yeah. intended. Um, which also was she didn't tell him he was gonna slap him. So uh good on him for doing that. Also, I do gotta go back because I always talk about Bob. Uh, and then I gotta go back though, because I forgot to mention this. When they're giving um back when Scotty and Bones are giving the uh uh the formula to this dude. There's just a shot of like this girl entering his office and she's like, he's like, you just hear me all not now, Madeline. And she's like, what the hell is going on here? Okay. I'm like, I've always wondered what she was going in there. I, for. See, I, I thought that that was like a joke about something yeah. or like, but I, it was like, I have like no idea, but I just like, I love the randomness. So, but going back, so the whales are gone. She's like concerned, like, you know, she's like, now it's like, okay, we got to save these whales. She goes back to, um, golden gate park and starts like banging on 
the the bird of prey she runs into it's like she's like fully like kind of like believing in this nonsense story eventually like kirk sees that she's there and it beams him in and again i love the little like i i do think like you can kind of see that like tingle direction from kirk because she kind of starts feeling herself like getting beamed up and she's like oh my god you know kirk wonders welcome to the wonderland and she's like oh my god it is all real and then she sees uh Spock with his ears for the first time, which I think is also fun, because uh, because Spock has basically been wearing a headband the whole time, which is a good look for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, I like this joke too, where it's like, "Well, we, we let's go. We gotta save the whales. We can't go anywhere. What kind of spaceship is this? One with a missing man." But eventually, they find that Chekhov is being checked in the Mercy Hospital. His his um, his condition is grave. They don't expect him to make it, and Bones immediately pops in and being like. Kirk, we got to save him from 20th century medicine. Like they'll, they'll kill him. And then, you know, and then basically, cause uh, Kirk was also frustrated with Spock earlier where it's like, you know, we, you know, if we, if we don't get those whales, we fail the mission, fail the mission, Spock, the entire humanity's at stake. Don't you feel about that? So it's really kind of sent him into a soul search. And then he's like, no, we got to save Chekhov because it's the human. thing." I, I did think one thing I thought was funny was that I understand they had that, that little spat, which I thought was tastefully done. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I love how he's like, um, what's his name? Uh, Spock's like, well, we have to go say Chekhov. And then Kirk's like, well, it's like, is that the logical thing to do Spock or the human thing? Like who ca- Who cares? Like right. he's he- making the right decision. Why are you right. giving him shit? Right. So then, <laughs> um, uh, so, they're, so they're in the hospital, and the this, hospital sequence. This leads to my other favorite, uh, making fun of the timeline moment. Yeah. Like, I, or like line in the movie was that Bones goes up to, like, this old woman, and then she's just like, you know... It's like, he's, oh. he's like, what's wrong with you? It's like, what, she's, he's like, what's wrong with you? In the most, Bones... Bones is great. He, yeah. he, he does the thing, and then she's like, oh, um, you know, something like dialysis. Kidney, dia- kidney, yeah, kidney, kidney dialysis. Kidney. And then he's like, dialysis? This is the Dark Ages. <laughs> like, he gives, her, was, it, he gives her a pill. Yeah. He gives her a pill, and then later, like, when they're trying to escape the hospital... <laughs> We just cut. They're like running past this woman, like the old woman. He's like, doctor gave me a pill and I got a new kidney. And all the doctors are like, it's it's fully functioning. Like we have no fucking idea what just happened. Right. I, right. I also like because they're also in the elevator. They like I like this they part, too, because they're looking for Chekhov in this hospital. They're all dressed up in like, you know, medical garb. And they're like, OK, we found him. He's on he's on the fifth floor. They walk past the dude and they immediately just take his bed, like the little bed he's rolling around. And the dude rolling the bed is like, he, he, like the way that he looks is just like, he's just had a day. And he's like, you know what? I'm not going to fight this. Like what, what, what the hell? Like I was, I, I was bringing this bed somewhere and now it's going off somewhere else. There's like a nice scene in the elevator where they're talking about like, you know, chemotherapy for his image therapy. And again, bones gets another, like, it's like the goddamn Spanish inquisition. I don't understand it. Uh, eventually they like sneak into the room where Chekhov is in by, by, you know, bones also gives like the very heavy medical words for cramps, which is also great. Like what'd you that's tell him? Yeah, that's, that's really fun. That's, that's really but then funny. they get this whole thing. And like the argument that bones is great in this whole sequence. Cause the argument he has with his doctor, it's like drilling holes in this guy is not the answer. The artery needs to be repaired. And then like, he's like, you know what? Like the guys, like the surgery guys, like I'm going to call the police. I'm getting them in here. And it's like, Kirk's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, we're just very unprofessional. Get in that room. Like, he just gets... <laughs> no, it, it, somebody, it, somebody in the background is like, is that a gun? <laughs> yeah. They, they melted the lock. 
And then they just, I like, again, this, the, the idealism of future medicine where they just like literally put like a little, like, 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 like toy little thing on Chekhov's head and it just mm-hmm. repairs him. And then, you know, then there's a whole hospital escape where they're just pushing around. <laughs> Kirk's like, cause they roll into the room with Hicks on the bed and then he roll out with Chekhov on the bed and, and the, the, the police escort out, out, outside of it's like, How's the patient? He's fine. He, you came in with a woman. One little mistake. Like Kirk's like, they've got us now. We got to get out of here. <laughs> but they're pushing everybody. It just, it's just a fun, just a fun yeah, random fun. sequence. It's good. Uh, but they eventually get back with Chekhov all safe and sound. They go off to save the whales. Um, and, you know, uh, they, they, everything's ready to go with the tank. They got another great scene. Yeah, the great scene where it's like, Kirk, uh, Spock is confiding with Bones as they're on their way to save these whales. It's like, well, Spock, you look like you're a little upset. Like, what's going on? It's like, well, you know, I, I based when we when we did my calculations, I, I based all my computations on when we arrived here. I did the same kind of computations. Well, yeah, what's wrong? Well, now acceleration is not going to be a constant with these whales in here. I didn't I didn't think about that. It's like, well, I got. I guess you're going to have to take your best shot, like your best guess. Guessing is not in my nature, Doctor. Like, and it's just like, well, mm-hmm. none of us are perfect. Yeah. Like, he's just like, even with them as friends, like, he's still like, Bones still and, relishes and, in these moments where he can just like lay it into Spock. But the reason I like the recontextualization of it, because it really is a, it's like a pet talk. It's like a, it's like an example of like Bones, like now having this like newfound, like kind of like relationship with Spock. Like he's still kind of giving him shit, but it's really like, come on, you can do it. Like it's, it's like it's like you're we're not perfect, but you're Spock. You you right. just gotta you gotta you gotta do it. Um so I like that I did like that. The 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 one kind of I don't know why, and I'm probably maybe it's just me, but the one kind of like silly moment, like movie moment in the movie was so you know they're they're going to they're going off to get the whales and the whole big her concern is like well now they're just going to be out in the open oceans where whalers can get them which first of all i had to like do a whole kind of mini research on whaling because it's just such like a weird thing mm-hmm. like it's just you, it's so hard to wrap your head around that that was like a thing and then i'm like well i mean it was it's like was were people like actively whaling at this time and it was like yeah i mean Probably maybe I think maybe that they lean into it a little bit more for the movie, but it was like it really wasn't like a big taboo thing until like the late eighties, so I guess that makes sense. But the one thing that kind of made me like like playfully roll my eyes was that so they go and find the whales and right then there's just some whalers on their tail. And yeah. it was just like it just made me all I could think about is like, listen, I understood that whaling was a problem, but it just made it seem like, yeah, there's just just there there's just whalers just standing by <laughs> twiddling their mustaches. Like that they were just ready to go. <laughs> I don't know why that made those, me those like, those damn Norwegians. Yeah, I was like it would just made me like, of course, like it was like and I think it was like the day. The day that they were released, whalers yeah. were right on their tail. Right. <laughs> they, 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 they were waiting for them. They were like just waiting in the sea. Look, they dropped off the whales. Let's go. Um, but I think it's still fun. Like when they throw the harpoon and it just hits the bird of prey and it uncloaks. That's a little fun little moment. I like that. Um, and I also like Hicks, like just again, just uh, the Julian Taylor character, just her like, 
when when Kirk's just like put it on screen, like we found the whales, put it on screen. She's like, how how can you do that? Like just her, like she's like, because she made it. Okay, so you know she made a decision to go to the future, which I like too because I like one thing where she's just like, like you know they they come back with Chekhov from the hospital. And he's like, I look, I need you to give me the radio signal because like our next stop's the 23rd century. Like you got to stay here. And she's like, I have no one here. Like the little, literally the only thing in the world she cares about is those whales. And she that wants made, to that, see it. That made me laugh. Uh, um, like, I like, uh, it's just like, I have no one here. I'm fine. And I also like the, just the idea where it's like the last time anybody ever saw her, she was like really upset about these whales being released and then she was never seen again. Mm-hmm. Like, I just like this idea where it's just it's like, Oh man, she just like ran off to like find these whales, I guess. Like she's like never coming back to the, the thing. So then, you know, they get the whales in there and we get another, we get another fun uh, Scotty line, which is um, one of uh, the favorite lines of James Duhon that he's ever get the set. He's like, Admiral, there be whales here. Like he's so excited that it worked. He's so happy. Such a great Scotty line, too. Yeah, it's a great Scotty line. And Scotty continues to be also like a lot of fun in these movies. Um, eventually, they get the whales. You know, Kirk, again, like that's where we get the scene. Like, I also like what well, you mentioned it before, but the scene where, he, where it's like, they're like, hey, like, Doc, Jillian, let's go see your whales. By the way, like, I like that Kirk just turned around. By the way, Scott, have you figured out the, uh, the computations of time warp t- taking into factor that the whale and the, the water weight, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Scott won't, uh, uh, can't give me specifics sir. So I'll have to make my best guess. You Spock, a guess extraordinary. And then, yeah, and, and, but then I think the best part about it is afterwards where again, you kind of that pep talk thing where he, you know, Spock goes up to bones and Spock's like, I don't think he understood. So he's like, no, he just means that he he trusts your guesses more than anybody else's facts. Oh, so it's a compliment. Well, I'll, I'll give it my best shot. You know, I, like I'll, I'll make it my best best guess I can be. But just like that line from Bones is exactly what you said, where it's like Bones just has that new appreciation for Spock, and it's like a big it's a big compliment. He knows that's like no, like Kirk actually is super excited because you know it means that Spock is back to an to a degree. But they eventually, you know, do the do the time warp again. Um, <laughs> sorry, do let's do the time warp again. Uh, and but like they get back, and as soon as they get back, the the time travel alongside the probe basically cuts out off their power. They crash into the the ocean. The whale, like Kirk, swims through, which was all Kirk. It was all Shatner, by the way. They said that Shatner did all that like underwater swimming by himself. Um, and they said it wasn't even him. Like, you know, all the cuts were like natural. He kind of like hold his breath for a couple minutes. He was pretty good at it. But anyways, they cut in. Kirk releases the whales. The whales communicate with the probe. They do the kind of cool thing where the whales go all the way down and the probe also kind of stands vertically. Um, the probe basically is like, okay, that's what I came here for. Whatever you said it goes off. The world is saved. And you could just tell like just from the shooting that this wasn't them acting anymore. Them flopping around in the water and like swimming and like pulling each other in. You could a hundred percent tell that was just the actors having just the time of their life with their friends, which I really thought was kind of sweet. Like, it's just like, it's really nice when you see like Shatner, like pulling Spock in and Spock's trying to like get like uh, Nimoy's trying to get a breath and everybody's just like laughing and having a great time. I just thought that was very sweet. Yeah. No, it's it's um it's good. 
Uh, and then we, you know, a ship picks them up and we get to kind of the end of this trial where the Enterprise crew are, are marched into the same sort of console chamber we saw at the beginning of the movie and the president reads their list of uh, uh, their their charges. And I like, again, sort of the, it goes through all of them reacting to it, kind of like at the beginning, how Kirk was going through all the, all of his friends to, to make sure that they were okay with them going back to Earth. And then eventually all the charges are dropped because of their actions, except for one, which is disobeying an officer. And the punishment, of course, for disobeying an officer is, is a demotion in rank for Kirk to become a captain again and do the thing he was put on, you know, put on this planet to do, which is command. Which, a th- this entire series of films thus far has been like the only thing he's kind of wanted back. Is like, the- yeah, it's kind of like a weird. It's like it's just fun. It's like kind of a weird way that these unplanned trilogy kind of does culminate in this sort of journey for Kirk. Cause the whole thing is like, yes, Kirk is feeling old, but the idea I get the heart of it throughout all these movies is Kirk kind of finding what his worth is and, and the enterprise crew finding their kind of place, you know, and, and showcasing that they are worth something, you know, cause even Kirk is just like, kind of like, you know, the whole thing is like, don't let yourself whittle away in this, in this apartment, you know, when bone says that to him, when he gives him the glasses in the first movie of this trilogy. So the fact that they kind of like the crew finally kind of proved their worth, you know, and then it, go, it just goes back to wrath of con where it's like, again, Kirk is kind of questioning kind of like where his place is. The rest of the enterprise crew is kind of like, well, why don't we just put an experienced crew on the star Trek, like, you know, on the enterprise, like everybody kind of wants to be kind of back in, prove that they have worth and even you know in in search for spock that was kind of a big thing where it's like they were all kind of shipped away to different things because they they, the enterprise was decommissioned after all the damage it took and they're all being shipped away to different corners and again they're just kind of regular people and they that the kind of arc at the end is kind of kirk and the enterprise crew have kind of proven their worth and proven themselves to be like this legendary crew that they are which i think Mm -hmm. is kind of a for a, a series that was not planned to be a trilogy kind of like flows very well into each other. Yeah. I guess like, it's interesting because the way in which you put that actually, um, actually recontextualizes the rest of the movie in a way that helps me out a little bit with it. Because my own, if I only really had one criticism of the movie, which is less of a criticism and more of like, I'm not really sure where like i i'm just kind of of two minds about it is is the fact that i love the kind of like the more uh paired back whimsical adventure that they go on um that's a bit of a sidestep from like the bigger plots that's been going on thus far but i mean also at the same time it is something where they open up this movie of like kirk's potentially wanted for Klingon war crimes. And then the movie ends with them being like, yeah, you know, don't, don't, don't stress out about it. In mm-hmm. fact, here's like kind of a promotion or at least a promotion that you want. Like, yeah. it's like, so it is kind of, and it's not like the rest of the movie and the story are about that. Like, it's not like there's some lesson learned that deals with the, with that framing of the film. So that's kind of where I'm like, I'm not sure, like, as, from a, from this the macro sense of the movie, yeah. how I feel about that. But your analysis of this unofficial trilogy, I think, contextualizes that in a way that makes me like it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always just kind of liked just how it kind of, like, these stories kind of almost, again, like, it wasn't planned as these three films, but it kind of does flow together very well. Uh, 
of course, uh, Julian Taylor is now in the future and has already been assigned to a science special. And of course, Kirk like, is like, well, is this it? Like, as they say in your century, I don't even have your telephone number. Um, and they's like, you know, we'll, we'll see each other around, like see you around the galaxy. Then we get to this scene with, with, with Spock and his father, which also is, it makes me emotional, honestly, just because uh, they like, they're very Vulcan-y. They're very kind of proper with each other. And, and, and great final line in, in, in their conversation. Right. So, so Sarek, uh, Sarek is basically to this a point where um, he's, you know, he's basically like, I, I wish to take my leave of you. And of course, it's like, um, you know, and I want to commend you for your work in this crisis. You know, it was no work. And I, it's just like this moment where there's kind of this, you know, we kind of got it a little bit in the last movie, but this real acknowledgement of like, at one point I opposed, you know, your application to Starfleet. And I, it is possible I have may have misjudged that, you know, your, your friend, your, your colleagues have, are people of great character. And then Spock replies, they are my friends. And Sark's like, you know, he smiles. He's like, of course they are. Like, you mm-hmm. know, it's like he kind of gets it. But then this line at the end where, you know, do you have a message for your mother? And then Spock replies, tell her I feel fine. Yeah, it's good. It's perfect. It's so, it's such a great bookend to Spock, Spock's character in this movie. It's such a great, and like, you know that his mom is going to appreciate that message, which I which is what I really like about it. Um, so then we, yeah, we cut to them on the shuttle. They're kind of having, again, their kind of conversations where it's like, you know, bones is like bureaucratic nonsense is the only constant in the universe. We're definitely getting like a freighter ship. Sulu is like really wants the Excelsior. Scotty is, is appalled by the idea of going to the Excelsior and Kirk's like a ship's a ship. This is what I want. So they pass over to the Excelsior and they reveal the Enterprise A, which is a nice little moment too, where they've re- re- rebuilt the Enterprise, and and it, and it is one of those moments where it, it is really just kind of like, oh, I guess they rebuilt the Enterprise, but the the slow, again, once again, a, a, a very effective introduction of the Enterprise. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you do feel elated when you see it, and and you get the little hints of the original series theme in the score too, mm-hmm. which I think is really fun. And then they're off to just like, let's see what she's got. And they're off to, you know, just kind of another adventure. They're off to Star Trek. Yes. Star yeah. Trekking across the universe. That classic song. Um, This is the point, Will, where I'm going to make a very bold statement. You probably won't agree with it, but I'm going to say it anyway. Over the past year, and especially with these rewatches, I legitimately think that Star Trek 2, 3, and 4 may be my favorite film trilogy. Personally speaking, I think these three films are all... How am I going to disagree with you, like, personally? (laughs) Well, I mean, I I just think you won't have the same opinion. That's what I mean. Right. Mm -hmm. I I just think, because I think Wrath of Khan is incredible. I think this movie is incredible. I think it ends, for, for me, on such a big satisfactory note and i think that when i think about watching these three movies in a row i I think that's something i would really like to do Mm -hmm. and i just think that it kind of again just has this kind of weird kind of arc for these characters the stories kind of flow into each other the fact that it wasn't planned like that that each film was kind of conceived on its own just makes that more impressive to me so Mm -hmm. 
because you know I, I could go why like the other major film trilogies like are not up there but I just think I'll focus on that I really love these three films and I really love the voyage home. yeah I think it's a I think it's a good series of films um I think it's interesting to talk about it now that you bring that up um about it as a trilogy I mean that's why I kind of always call it like an unofficial trilogy yeah that's kind of the thing about it is that like it's not like other trilogies which are more kind of planned you know more yeah and more the thing about it like as a trilogy it more emotionally takes you through an arc rather that would be the only kind of like thing i would say about it like it feels good as a kind of like a moment in the enterprise crew Mm -hmm. like and and now that you've kind of like you know recontextualized it with this whole like you know that you know they're being kicked off the enterprise and then it ends with them getting onto the enterprise so i I think it kind of has like a nice feel good loose emotional arc Mm -hmm. uh between it um i think my only thing about it that keeps me from saying like it's a trilogy of films because it's like i just think kind of like narratively it, it, it doesn't quite um deliver that i don't want to say it's like good or bad it just i just don't that's why i call it like unofficial trilogy, unofficial yeah. trilogy. i think that's a fair um, i think that's a fair assessment yeah I think a fair assessment. but i mean it is a good series i i think it's a good series of films i i do think that you know i i liked um the third one what's the third one called search again? for search for spock i mean search like, for search for spock is good i i, I think it's like if you had to compare them, the weakest of the three. Oh, uh, I think, yeah, I, I mean, that's definitely not, I don't think that's up for debate. I think that's yeah. just clearly like the case, but I also think that the connective tissue of it and the very fun moments of it, like still very much work for me. So what I will say though, is that what I enjoyed about the three films is that especially once again, coming off of the motion picture, how basically this was like a triple punch jolt to the system of like reinvigorating star trek as like a movie franchise Mm -hmm. and it's just one after another just like came out with like some pretty strong films to like really get get it back on track in very unique ways that's the thing too because i think there's some unique things about wrath of khan um, there's some unique things about the third about uh search for spock and there's very unique things about this film too um what and none of which i feel go against what i would want from from the films very true um like they're they're, it's they're really not like you know you can quibble about like you know them just like as movies and everything but none of them had me wanting or i I never felt like any of them were lacking in being like pretty good star trek films for sure yeah Um, i would definitely agree with that i think it definitely is uh the the kind of jolt to the Star Trek system, which I will, will continue to talk about in the aftermath, unless you have any last no. thoughts. No, I mean, like I said, I, I do agree in the sense that I do think it's a good kind of, because I almost, again, it, it, I view it as kind of like this mini, this mini chapter. Because it, it, you know what, that's what it is. It doesn't feel like three, because to me, a trilogy feels like, oh, three different chapters. Whereas this feels like one chapter. Mm-hmm. Like, it, you know what I mean? It almost feels like yeah. this is like the big, kind of moment in all of these characters lives and it, it, it's like and it delivers in that i think for sure all right so the voyage home eventually releases theatrically uh on thanksgiving weekend uh 1986 so november 26 um so it was moving from search for spock summer date into uh kind of the winter season 
um, which I thought would would give it a, a big boost of box office sales. And they were very correct. Um, the Voyage Home was noted as uh, finally topping the dominance at the box office of Crocodile Dundee, uh, which had had an eight-week reign. Uh, so it's opening weekend. Uh, so a five-day weekend was $39.6 million, uh, uh, exceeding the opening of Search for Spock. Uh, eventually, the film made a total of uh, $133 million worldwide on a $21 million budget, making it, technically speaking, the most successful Star Trek film ever up to that point. Though the motion picture made, uh, you know, more in that 140 million range worldwide, the larger budget of the motion picture meant that there wasn't many profits. So basically, for a very long time, all the way up through um, 2009, this is the most successful Star Trek film ever made, financially speaking. Uh, and in terms of its reviews, also very highly regarded, uh, especially among audiences. Uh, uh, critics thought just thought what well, we it's fun it's funny it kind of wraps up sort of this kind of ongoing story and it, it, they felt it was very satisfying they felt the characters were satisfying the numerous direction and the performances were all very good uh this is a very popular film among the star trek fans and among general audiences uh one thing you see a lot in terms of this film is you see a lot of reactions of and i know like a twitter one went viral a couple uh months ago but there very much is a thing where it's like people kind of like, oh, yeah, it is the one with the whales, as we kind of talked about. And then when they see it, they're like, oh, no, that movie rocks. There's a very big sense of like people who see this movie just see how fun and joyful and kind mm-hmm. of silly it is. And there's a big part of the Star Trek fandom that likes this movie even better than Wrath of Khan. That Wrath of Khan and Voyage Home are always one and two. And it's just kind of what kind of Star Trek fan you have or just kind of which one they like um, is there. But. Uh, one of its biggest ongoing legacies, and I, I don't know if not a lot of people talk about this, is that this could be regarded as legitimately one of the most important Star Trek films of all time. Because Paramount is looking at this movie and seeing its success, but also taking a realistic look at what's surrounding. You know, the budgets are still low, but they're increasing. They saw, you know, Shatner was demanding more money and these actors are getting older and there's going to be a finite number of times they can bring this crew out before it's just, they just age out of these roles. And the success of this movie told people, you know, Paramount, this was still one of their big franchises. Like, yes, they were releasing Indiana Jones, but they didn't own that. They were releasing Beverly Hills Cop, but they didn't know how long Eddie Murphy was want to want to do those movies. They were still looking for something to do with Mission Impossible. You know, they still hadn't figured that out yet. So they saw Trek as like their golden goose. And so they needed to find a way to make sure that this golden goose could continue. So it's the success in the production of The Voyage Home that convinces Paramount that they need to make a new Star Trek television series with a new set of actors that they can eventually make movies out of. So the voyage home is the origin story or is a big part of the origin story for star Trek, the next generation, which will have its first season air next year in 1987. That's awesome. So, and that, and that really is like the voyage home kind of ensured the longevity of the star Trek franchise at the Mm -hmm. end of the day. Yeah. And then it's like, and especially because, like, you know, like I kind of had mentioned before, like the the franchise, the movie franchise up until this point is so entrenched in like this 
this uh, veteran crew, like, you know, getting every, you know, getting back their position and everything that, you know, that they're, and, and, you know, not to say that it's tired, but it's kind of like exploring that where it's like, there's got to be some room for just some fresh adventures where it doesn't come with the baggage of right, cause, like, oh, like the legacy and then things like that. Right. Because so. this movie was also celebrating, you know, part of its marketing was like it's the 20th anniversary of the original series, like the mm-hmm. 1966 season. So the fact that, you know, and it was like, you know, we'll, we'll definitely talk about the next generation, but then, you know, it's a way to kind of get Roddenberry more involved again because he gets to make the new TV series and to kind of explore different aspects of the Star Trek franchise. And again, they can eventually mine for more popular films. Yeah. Cool. So that is Star Trek for the voyage home. Good movie. Great movie. Just a delightful film. A delightful time. Definitely. If you've never seen it and you listen to all of this, please watch it because it's, just so funny and just the comedic timing and the, and the, and the characters or everything are so perfect. Uh, but next time we are going to a not so perfect movie. Um, so, you know, we, we searched for Spock. We had to get some whales. Now, Will, it's finally time to meet God. We are going to dig into uh, a film that is directed by William Shatner. He finally gets a chance to, to take the director's chair and showcase his vision of what a Star Trek movie is as we will dig into Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, one of the most infamous films in the history of the Star Trek franchise. Listen, as long as we just find out why God needs a starship, I, I just, that, it's just, it's just a question that I need the answer to. And I just feel, I feel like I'm going to get it. This I in, think, in I mean, I, I don't know exactly, but we'll see what, we'll see what you, we'll see what you come up with. Yeah. Uh, but next time on Bonzilla Presents is not Star Trek. We are back into the world of King Kong. Yeah. And we are going to be getting into what by all accounts is a weird little movie <laughs> starring Linda Hamilton. And once again, produced by Dino De Laurentiis, uh, the very obscure uh, and very intriguing King Kong lives uh, from around the same era. So we're going to get another look at like what an 80s Kong movie is and and how Dito De Laurentiis follows up uh, all the fun he had on the 1976 version. So here's my question. Are we are we going to be able to watch this? I uh I have a plan. Okay. All right. That's all I need to know. I, I have a plan. It may involve this is yeah. Cause folks, this is not a movie that's easy to find. Mm-hmm. So uh, I oh, will. All right. You, you, you uh, listeners, you, you heard Nick, he, he, he's got a plan. So I'm going to take the vaccine and let him drive on that one. All right. Um, but for now, for the time being, we will. Go on and do some plugs. And uh, hopefully there will be a King Kong Lips episode, but I, I have a plan, so we'll okay. figure it out. So, bonzillapod at gmail.com, uh, twitter.com slash bonzilla77, facebook.com slash bonzilla77, like and subscribe, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Uh, again, guys, we're happy, and guys and girls, everybody, no matter who you are, no matter uh, how you live, we're happy that you're listening. And, uh, we hope you're having a good life. Yep. Cool. All right, well, uh, so we'll let's go. We'll, we'll we'll save some whales and we'll be back next time. All right. Take care of the whales. <laughs> Bye everybody.
Don't tell me. You're from outer space. No, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. <laughs> 